when you're trying to do wildlife photography and photos of you know deer and ducks and stuff like that you usually always trying to get as it's always difficult to get as close as you can yeah. and and then once you do get close enough it's actually easy to sort of panic and just get as close as you can and then in post you're like man i'm actually too close now like yeah, it, yeah, yeah. you get so focused on the bird or whatever you're trying to catch and then sometimes you think man i should have just out a little bit and shown a bit more of the scenery of it where, where the animal lives or whatever but yeah, it's um it's yeah i mean i'm just self-taught i've got a camera that doesn't it's just a point and shoot basically with a big zoom and um i don't yeah, no, I haven't been in any courses or whatever, so I'm just figuring it all out. But it's I really enjoyed taking photos of especially live beds or whatever, doing a doing a normal thing without really being too worried about me, you know. It's quite cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah your photos are awesome, man. And it's it's you don't know how hard they are to get until you've actually tried yourself, eh? Yeah. Especially those flying birds. It's just man, it can be I get I don't know, I remember one day on the Alice Mirror I took um it was 120 photos and i had 12 that were good 10 percent there yeah. um just that's just the way it goes and then some days you might take i mean other days i probably i remember one day particularly i shot my limit pretty quick and then sat there with a camera for two hours taking photos i think i clicked up 300 photos and i got a whole lot of really good ones but just the way it goes some days you know a huge part of it must be uh like even which direction the light's coming from when you'd almost need the sun on your back to get good photos wouldn't you sun on your back but then i'm normally in my layout boat so you're rocking around as well so that doesn't make it easy but Mm. some days on that lake if you get the birds right you can get a lot of opportunities so but then yeah it's just the way it goes this year wasn't like that there was hardly any birds there but just just take the good with the bad and go back next year Yeah. (laughs) yeah yeah um Man, the first time I started getting interested in doing a podcast with you was not this season, but the season before, so season 2021. Yeah. And I kept seeing your posts. I think it was June, you were down um, at yeah. Ellesmere and you were like shooting on the lake almost every single day and you were doing like a little diary. I don't know if it was on your personal Facebook or on the... Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah, I was posting a lot on Facebook then, but I didn't read it this year on that much, so much. But yeah, last year, I was there for 17 days straight. Um, I had one morning off where I couldn't see anything in the fog and I basically got a little bit bamboozled in the, in the lake on my bike and gave up pretty much and just went for a casual stroll around the lake on the bike, well, a ride around the lake on the bike in a couple of different areas I'd always looked at. Didn't bother shooting, but it didn't really, didn't worry me. Um, but yeah, last 2021 trip was was unreal. I just, I don't know, just lots of ducks on the lake and um, and I managed to shoot, uh, I think I got two, yeah, two limits of mallards um, on two different days, obviously. And then, but every day I got half a dozen birds, which is what matters more than you know the limit and all that sort of stuff. But when I mean, you yeah, don't get me wrong, you get a big rush when you get the limit, and especially when you get it fast. Like one day, one of those particular days, I got it in 90 minutes. Um, but I don't know. I'd rather go out and get half a dozen nicely decoy birds, and that you know, then then go out there and thrash 15 every day, you know. Um, and then you end up with so many ducks back where we stay that just like, man, you got a breast with these. And I mean, I enjoy it just as much go out there and get a few good photos and shoot a few ducks. And and then, you know, you don't have copious amounts of birds to try and breast, take home, get the meat back and all that sort of stuff, you know. So, um, and then so much to eat, you know. So it's, um, no, nah, but I, 
Ellesmere is my definitely my favourite place to hunt ducks in my boat or anywhere. It doesn't really doesn't really matter whether it's boat or not. Um, I really love the what Ellesmere gives you. I don't know what it is. It's just something about that place. I hunt Lake Warapa as well um, in my boat or whatever, and that's cool. And I've done that for 25 years, but Ellesmere is just something different about it. Don't know, don't know what it is, but it's not even it's not even the fact that there's a lot of birds there because sometimes it's not. Um, we've done ten years down there. I reckon probably five of those years have been it seems to go year on year off. Um, so we find yeah, one year you'll have a pretty good year, the next year will be pretty low, and then the year after that might be all right again. But, um, but yeah, it just doesn't really matter how many mm -hmm. birds you come back with in the end of it. Yeah, I just remember what seeing your post and just thinking like. A obviously you're like super passionate about duck hunting because I don't care, like and it, it's obviously extremely fun, but to go out every single pretty much every single day for 17 days in a row, <laughs> you're gonna be a little bit mad. <laughs> all verging on, verging on. I remember thinking, yeah. man, that looks fun too, and that's actually yeah the exact style of hunting that I like as well. Not so much like big groups of guys and these big 200 duck weekends and stuff but a day and you're hunting public land too public water which is really cool and like going out and getting half a dozen well-earned ducks and like tidy execution too getting them close decoying well reasonable shooting you know not a mess not like heaps of sky busting and like yeah. you know how duck hunting can get messy yeah, yeah. We, we normally find that when it turns into a competition, when people are like, "Oh, I can shoot more ducks than you," and then they start taking silly shots just to get another duck and mm. all that sort of thing. So yeah, we I try and keep away from that if possible. We still sort of keep a tally just because then we can say, "Oh yeah, it's just sort of gauge it off other years." But we don't really take personal tallies anymore down there. We just sort of put it on the billboard as a whole group of we got. 20 ducks today or we got five or we got whatever some days you might get in single digits down there you know and some days mm. um our best ever day there was 72 mallards on the lake between four guns um when the limit was 25 we got there um then that was just an um, that just caught us out by surprise that day we didn't know it was going to happen just and that's sometimes what you remember more than mm. and just the amount of bird life flying that day was i've never seen anything like it at that stage i've seen i've had days similar on that lake since but um yeah that day was there was mobs of birds and normally when you see mobs down there it's teal you know teal, there were mallards or spoonies coming past in like groups of 30 um it's just yeah it was something else i've never seen anything like it um what was had, it do you think was it some uh, some sort of weather push that had pushed them yeah it was a oh, no nah, it wasn't a big southerly it was a southerly that blew all night and it was a, about a 25k southwester um we just lucked out. It was only a, it was our second trip down there, so we didn't really know that much about the area. We'd had a couple of, um, well, our first trip was a was a whitewash. We got it was four guns there. We got 30, 30 odd mallards for a whole week. Um, I think it was six days hunting or something. And that was early in May. It was just too calm, and um, we just decided, oh, we'll come down for ten days, and we'll go in June instead. And um, 
just a bit later, hopefully a bit of rough, rougher weather. And the birds also on lots of those lakes, Wairapa as well, they leave after opening weekend because they get so much pressure. Opening weekend and then opening week might get a few ducks. And then later on in the season, they start to fill the back a bit. So you get get come back. And um, so we thought, oh, well, if we leave it till late June, get in there for 10 days so we get a little bit more little bit more space for weather in that and so we trucked out there in the morning we didn't really know what was happening and it was blowing a bit and the water would come up a bit because water moves and the wind gets blown in and um, we actually submarine my little boat the one that I, the previous model to what I've got now um, the first one I built like that um, <laughs> towing along we had a bike and four boats tied one after the other and a big long string and um my boat was right at the back and the guy driving the boat was the bike was probably going a bit fast and we were on a head-on wind and the waves were just coming up i was sitting on the front of this bike two guys on the back and a guy driving and the, the waves were breaking over my knees and i said to the guy i think you should just just thumb off a little bit just slow down so he did and then the big bow wave just sort of dissipated a little bit and away we went kept going and then a couple of minutes later my mate andrew turned around and goes um merit's boat's underwater so <laughs> We're dragging it on the bottom of the lake. It's full of decoys, and my I, back days then I didn't have a dry box. So I just had a blind bag, a every blind bag that was supposed to be waterproof. But of course, when it's submerged in water, it was not waterproof at all. So my lunch, uh, my electronic earmuffs, my mm. radio, uh, ammo, all that sort of stuff was just drowned. So, um, so we just picked up all the gear out of it put it on the bike, picked up the boat, turned it upside down, put it back down. There was still water in it. So we bailed all that out. And I said to the boys, just leave me here. I'll sort it out. You go and hunt and I'll just, we'll just go. And um, we just spread out along this big area down there. And um, when it got light, nothing really much was happening for a start, still blowing a wee bit. And then when it really, when it get a light bit better, there was a lot of ducks moving. And I was starting to think, well, this could be, this could be a good day. And I remember our limit at home was six mallards that year. And we had a drop in the population, a couple of droughts and that. And I remember shooting a double out of the boat. When I was out of the boat picking up those two, I shot another double and then shot a single as they as I was picking up those. So I was walking back to the boat with five ducks. And I was like, <laughs> man, this is nearly this is nearly done in the shooting at home, you know? I was like, man, this is unbelievable. And then yeah, we got through, my mate Andrew got his 25, about 2Ks up the lake from me. Uh, another mate of mine got, um, Trin, he got 18, I think it was. Another friend of ours was going home that day um, to see his wife off to America. So I don't think his, he, he was in the game. He only got six mallards. And then I got my, I got 24 mallards, 23 mallards and one spoonie. So I had my, um, you know, you always have a bit of a goal to shoot a limit out there, you know, 25 ducks. So I had 22 mallards no 20 I had two to go and two mallards to go and I had a spoon and you only had one at that stage and this pair came up and I'd had all day I'd had pairs come past my feet bang bang and I shot maybe six doubles like that and they did exactly the same thing but they were a little bit further out so bang bang dropped them both thought yes that's 25 and then I sat up and they both wounded both swimming because of that and we'll talk about this a bit later but the distance was a bit further because I was trying to get my 25. So I they were both wounded. So I managed to ping the drake, got him dead, and I never saw the hen. She dive when I went out to go get her, and I never saw her again. So I missed out by my 25 Alice Miller limit by one. But hey, it doesn't matter too much.
Yeah, I agree. There is all, and the big days are still awesome. Um, yeah. And there is always that thing in the back of your head, like, oh, I could get my limit here. And then when you yeah. get real close and you're yeah. looking at that last couple of yeah. birds, uh, you starting are like... to take, starting to take risks a little bit, shoot a little <laughs> bit further than what you would. And I mean, they weren't, they weren't really long range, but they were still getting out for steel shot, you know. Um, and yeah, I, I did drop them both with two with a shot each, but they were both wounded. So I managed to get the drake, but the hen, and never saw. And I, I searched for her for ages because that was the last one, and I knew we had to get going to go to the airport to drop the other mate off that was going home and all that sort of thing. So, and that's about when the flight finished. So, but I don't really know what caused them to fly. There was a lot of ducks on the lake that year, um, but, and then yeah. I, I just don't know. And then the following year, like I said, was a crap year. We we had a good southerly and we hardly shot a bird. Um, so just just mm. luck of the draw sometimes where the cooking crumbles. One thing I thought of then, like as you started saying that, is um, because the big braided rivers hold quite a few birds in those areas, eh? Yeah, I've never hunted them, but I will one day, but I just haven't. You really need some good gear like a jet boat or maybe a yeah. maybe a four-wheel drive with a snorkel and we don't have either at the moment so i yeah. was just wondering if i i just thought and i just thought of it then while you were talking is if there was a heap of duck camps up all those big rivers and yep. you got the right wind and a heap of rain in the hills to flood those rivers so they can't yep. sit on all the braids and that i bet yep. you that moves some birds around too like that can cause yeah. a lot of bird movement hey eh? rivers going up and down yep yeah, and they can't sit where they want to all of a sudden and, and all that mm. sort of thing. We, we see that a lot with tidal. We hunt a bit of tidal stuff here at home. And when the tide comes up, they're forced to move and all that sort of thing. So it's mm. just, it should be a similar sort of thing, I would say. Yeah, mm. especially on a rough day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah on, yeah. on a rough day, you've got the wind. And yeah, there's still obvious, there's obviously more water in the river, but it's all just pushing really hard. So it's, yeah, it ch completely changes, eh? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, where did you grow up and, and how did you start hunting? How did you get into duck hunting? So I'm a born and bred man with two guy. Still live here. Still live. I live about 20 minutes from where I grew up. Um, dad or his, his dad was a pond stalker and water swatter. And then my dad was a, or well, still is a duck hunter. Um, still pretty keen. Dad's about nearly 69 now, but he's still, still pretty keen. Um, he taught me to stalk beams and night shoot and stuff like that. And um, I remember going to a place, actually, funnily enough, it's only about five minutes from where I live now that's completely built out. You wouldn't um, you wouldn't hunt ducks there now. It's just all two-acre blocks and all this. Um, no real farms left in there now. It's all just cut up to small bits. And um, But we'd, we'd stalk the ponds and then sh and, and night shoot on one of them, the one that had the most feeders on it. Dad always, you know, look for the one that had the most feeders and we'd go back to that one and sit there. And, and uh, But I remember going there when I was three years old, stuff like that, for, just for night shooting, and um, me and my sisters. And then Dad had a little mama on one of them that he pretty much always took us to because could, we could sit in there and be warm and that out of the wind and shoot the odd duck. And, Dad wasn't a particularly good shot back then, but <laughs> um, and then I remember Dad built a mine on the Arua River, which is uh, it was nearly at Copany, which is flows the river pretty much goes through Fielding, and then goes through Copany through sort of Bayneshi and into the Manawatu River, and so Dad had this um, a friend of his that gave us access through the farm, and Dad built this mine 
and I would have been, I wasn't shooting yet, so I would have been nine or 10, I suppose. And I remember dad shooting it so many ducks with his Russian side by side, bike owl. Um, and I don't think, I don't remember him getting one. I remember dad going bang, bang, birds flying past, bang, bang. He reckons he shot one on the water at 1.30 in the morning or something, came in and landed, which they never landed where we shot. But they, he came in and landed, so he leaned out the moment I shot it just to get one to take home because he was just missing everything else. That's what he said. I don't know what I'm going to hold him to it. But <laughs> <laughs> and then Dad started me when I was 11. Um, on, in that moment, I just shooting. We had this two big oxbows on each. We, we were on a corner of the river, and there was an oxbow on one side of the river and uh, on the same side, opposite side of the river from us, but on either side of the corner, there was this, these two oxbows. What's an oxbow? I might be part, a... part of the old river channel. So the river channel either got diverted by machines or changed its put path somehow and left a low patch and they made a pond out of it or it automatically okay. banked up or whatever. But normally I think they probably made a, made a bank across it, made a pond. Yep. So one of them particularly is a pretty well-known that we banned ducks here and there's always a lot of ducks here and that. So, um, but yeah, they, they'd shoot a lot of birds. So we'd, we'd see them circling and just let them go into these ponds. And as they shot, they'd come out past us and we'd shoot. But it was fast and furious shooting like lead was a you needed to figure that out which i took me a long time to figure it out but they were flying fast because they'd just been shot at and i remember shooting many ducks on the other side of the river dead particularly um and i got opening morning i think i got one duck for my first my first morning at 11 years old i thought it was just great but one duck and then i got 10 ducks for the season um, stalking ponds at the place down the road from us and a few other, dad had a few other access places and that, so um, yeah so that, that's pretty much how it all began um, not really decoying ducks that much, that sort of came a little bit later but yeah, um, just parachuting birds and stalking ponds and all that sort of stuff and um, move into the, what, how we sort of progressed if you want now or Yeah, um, I mean yeah, we were talking about um, yeah, how you started off with the single barrel shotgun shooting light loads and like yeah. learning to shoot swing and lead and stuff like that. Have you got any tips on that or is that getting into too much? Well, no, no, that's all right. I, um, yeah, dad started me with a single barrel bike out with, uh, back then you could still shoot lead. So he loaded some really light ounce loads, like lighter than clay, like just the lowest you could go without it being, not functional, you know. Yeah. Um, I was only a little weave guy at 11 years old. I wasn't very big. So I was a 12 um, gauge? Yep. Yeah, 12 gauge, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've never shot anything with anything less than a 12 gauge. I just can't yeah. seem to. Whenever I've tried another sub gauge, I just haven't. I'd like to. I'd like to be able to shoot something smaller, and I could do. It's just I never really have. That's a good um, idea how your dad started you on light loads. It's funny because I started at the exact same age with a shotgun. I got my first shotgun. It was a single barrel 12 gauge and yeah. um, man, it booted. It didn't have a, um, it didn't have a rubber butt pad on it. It just had the hard yeah. plastic butt pad on it yeah. and it was light, yeah. tight coat and it booted man. And yeah, it yeah. was terrible for my shooting. Eh? I didn't, start shooting well with a shotgun until i got a 1187 when i was 14 oh yeah um yeah. and then my dad had a nice under and over which i couldn't shoot with at all and in hindsight it just obviously didn't fit me there was something really off with the fit of the gun for me but as soon as i got that 1187 i was away yeah yeah and that's just fit 
you know, and obviously the gas operated uh, semi and I was getting older, but then the recoil was manageable, but um, yeah, too much recoil when you're starting out is terrible for your shooting. eh? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a dad had that sorted. And like, I was shooting with it one day when I said, and I was missing a lot, obviously. And I said, Dad, oh, I, don't, I don't think these can kill ducks. So he put a couple in his gun and shot a and shot two. So he said, Well, now they can kill ducks. You just got to, you just got to put it in the right place. So, which is what everybody needs to remember. If they're blaming their ammo, it's normally because you're putting it in the wrong place. It's not because of the ammo. It's not being up to scratch. So, but yeah, I, Dad, Dad used to take me down the river when I was a young fella with a shotgun and you chuck, they'd probably frowned upon now, but he'd chuck um, Coke bottles in the river and just let me swing through and shoot them. And sort of got the idea of lead and swing and a little bit, like in the Rangitiki River, that's a fast flowing river. So they were doing all right. But I still took a long time to figure out, like, you know, the pellets in your brain, the pellets are going so fast. So how can you need lead and all that sort of thing? In my young brain, I was like, how can you, you can't, you know, so it took me a long time to figure out that you actually do need to get in front of the birds. You do need to swing. You needed to stop, not stop swinging and mm. all that sort of stuff. It took me um, probably four or five years to get it, to get it properly. Um, and even then I still wasn't really what I would call a reasonable shot tool. I was probably 25, I would say, before I really started to shoot properly. You know, like, yeah, confidently get um, get a bird when I shoot and stuff like that, you know. Before then, it was sometimes a surprise when a bird fell out of the sky, you know. So, mm. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and I, you know, I, Dad had, gave me that single barrel and then I borrowed a, <laughs> I borrowed a, um, a guy that in our duck hunting club for the middle two gave me a, Cyber side. I can't remember what it was, but he gave me a cyber side to use for a season. And we went down to um, one of the local lakes, it's a private lake, but it was um, one of the local coastal lakes in the middle of two here, shooting swan for Queen's Verta weekend. And I'd shot a few with my single barrel, but Deb, and Deb is always putting swan up in the boat or whatever, paddling around and just getting them moving. And I fired, I don't know how many rounds that weekend with that cyber side, but I never shot a swan. So I just I and I was so confused. I couldn't figure out whether I needed more lead, whether I had too much lead, or what I was. I, I don't know what I was doing. It's not so, always. It's not always the lead, though, right? It's um like I have just sorted that out. Uh, I had it because I'm six foot six, and I've got a bit of a bugger neck, so I'm not as far as tucking into a gun comfortably. In that, yep, it's not yep. not that good. Um, and a standard gun just doesn't fit me, even when I put all the shims in it and that. Yeah. And um, I made a massive, big custom shim for uh, my shotgun, and I moved the butt out about 15 mil, big spacer, and put a huge rake on it and yeah. uh, like cast it way down. Yeah. And um, and man, not like I still had to, I had a bit of adjustment to do because having poor fitting guns had messed up my shooting process so much because you start trying to aim more and yeah. I'd figured out that the gun was shooting high. So I was trying to tuck into it and aim. And I had a bit of shit to smooth out once I got the gun fitting right. But once I did, it was just so different. Um, so fit and like your cast up and down is really important. And yeah. you can, I've had that and I've done a lot of, clay shooting over the last couple of years 
not tons and tons, but a fair bit. And yeah, I found that a real big one. And I was like, muck, that's what I was doing. And I thought it was my lead. And then I worked out, nah, it's my up and down. And so it didn't matter where I, and you drive yourself nuts because it doesn't matter where yeah. you lead it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you just can't get it. And I find a lot of the times, like people say, oh, you need to lead the bird and all that sort of stuff. But I find lead's not really what my issue is now. I get excited and put my head off the gun. Yep. So I've got the gun like that and I've got my head up watching the birds and, and just shooting. So you'd be shooting way over top of them, which is probably what I was doing with that gun that time. Um, mm. But I mean, I was probably only 15. Yeah, I was about 15, I think. So I came home from that Queen's birthday weekend trip and I had about 800 bucks in the bank and I got dad to take me to the local sports shop and I bought a new gun. Disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> The fact that I couldn't hit a swan. So I brought a um underlayer bike out with double triggers and multi chokes. And probably two years later I shot two chokes out of it at the gun club one time. The chokes just for whatever reason, I don't know whether I didn't have them wind it enough or that because they were quite thin. I mean a bike out normally is really solidly built, but the chokes were paper thin. And I don't know whether the heat maybe changed them somehow or whatever, but I shot two chokes out. So in the end I got it chopped off behind the chokes and it gave me two quarter chokes which is the best thing I could have ever done for a young fellow like that I, I started to shoot better um, so I would have been what 18 I suppose um, actually I'll probably tell a lie with 25 starting to shoot better it's probably more like 20 I started to shoot a little bit better yeah um, but yeah that, that was that was because the bike owl even though they had quarter choke on it it was still tight like it was probably more like half and for an average shooter not wanting you know not really being able to hit much putting a tight choke in is not really not ideal at all mm. so um but yeah cutting it off from two quarter chokes was the best thing i could ever do lead fives lead outs in the quarter fives and i was i was killing stuff all over the place so uh, much better than what i had been so yeah 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 interesting man it's it's yeah it's interesting like um and i look back on some of the experiences i had when i was younger and no one around me really had a clue either and like just the importance now that I think about like a young guy starting off um, shooting clays, getting a gun that fits you right. Protect, like I think it'd be awesome to get some coaching because man, you can go through some hell like of missing yeah. and buying new guns and nightmare days and ammo and crap. And yeah. there is a little bit to it. eh? Cause I had so much trouble um recently that uh yeah I sort of went nuts on it um like studying it and what you know all through the internet and YouTube and everything and I worked a yeah. lot out and it was interesting because um yeah when I first started asking around and digging there wasn't that much stuff like right there readily available I had to dig through a lot of stuff and have a pretty good filter and a lot of trial and error just to, there is some pretty good stuff on the internet though mainly um like sport sporting shooter type channels you yep. know about clay bird shooting and stuff like that those guys yep. are pretty into it yeah um yeah mainly about the fit and um keeping your eye open both eyes open and why that's important how your brain works and your vision works and stuff like that and yep. but yeah yeah well that's that's some. I think I am left eye dominant as well because when I when I was looking at those YouTube videos and stuff like you are and 
what they're saying about what you should see, and I don't see that. So I, I pretty, I don't really know, but I'm pretty sure I shoot with my left eye closed. Um, yeah. But I can also shoot left-handed. So, yep. which I taught myself to do out of my little boat. So, because I had a lot of birds flying up my right hand side and I couldn't shoot. So, I had enough of letting them, or trying to twist myself around and shoot right handed and all that sort of stuff. So, I taught myself over a couple of years to shoot, right, shoot left handed. So, and I can do that pretty well. I can get doubles and stuff like that, dead ducks. So, it's yeah, hard. Pretty, uh, it's pretty, pretty satisfying when you can do it there. Yeah. Um, but, doesn't really matter if you let those ducks fly past sometimes, but then, you know, you might be having a tough day. Some days, like you're saying about the sun with photos, well, the sun also affects my little boat. So if you have the sun in the wrong place and the sun's coming on the side of it and they get to a certain point, they'll just go out that side. It's just the way they go. So some days you can change the boat around so you can shoot them right-handed and some days you just, just can't. Sometimes they mm. just, you, know, you might be there, you've had, three or four pairs do the same thing and it's just like oh well if <laughs> you shoot these left handed <laughs> it's funny that eh how different wind and direction like you get it um shooting yep. um in a layout blind on the stubble and a layout blind's the same thing like it's so nice to be standing up because you can turn much easier and be more comfortable but when you're in yep. a in a layout blind you, it's a bit more awkward and um, sometimes you think you're all set up right, but there's something, there's some trees 150 metres away and the wind is a set, and for some reason they want to come in all cocked up on an angle. But the layout blind in a paddock, you just stand up and give it yep. a quarter turn and um, having them come in and in it, it's not necessarily always the best having them coming straight at you because as soon as you jump up, they're just flaring straight over like an awkward corner to turn. Yep. Yeah. Um. I actually found that out on accident, sort of setting up a, like semi backwards to the wind. And as soon as I lay down, I thought, oh, I'm a bit actually a bit cocked up here. But then the ducks uh, were coming. I'm right-handed, and they were coming in from almost my left shoulder, yeah. which was and and then as soon as you sat up and hooked into them, yeah, yeah, I had them from like my full turn right around to my left. And yep. all the way across the front of me and all the way out. Yeah. And that that was almost that was a lot better than a lot of times when I've had them coming straight in. And as soon as you hook into them, they just flare out and go over toppy and out to your right hand side, which is difficult for me because I can't yep. turn that way. Yep. Yeah, well, that first thing when I, mean, I was always getting frustrated, and I saw, I don't know if you you've watched any of Paul Boyce's videos on YouTube or whatever. Yeah. He's he's a bit of a legend, but he um shot a lot of birds for a long time, you know, and I've seen a few videos of him where he changes shoulders and shoots left, shoots right-handed, left-handed, right-handed and stuff like that. And I thought, man, that is the way to go. So it's, that's it's what made me classy. think of it. Yeah, yeah. And even um, we had a goose shoot this summer and I was on, we normally have left-handers with us, but that particular shoot we didn't. And those left-handers normally go on the right-hand side of the paddock. So they weren't there. So the boys said, well, you can shoot left-handers so you can go on that side. So... <laughs> <laughs> we had mobs coming in and, and it was just hectic for about an hour and I think we ended up with about 80 or 90 or something on the ground And but I was changing shoulders quite regularly because the birds were coming in and breaking that way or breaking that way and so I'd shoot a couple there and then I was, I'm breaking that way so you change shoulders and shoot there and I was pretty happy with my performance set on that shoot yeah. Mm. Yeah. I saw um, there's a guy up this way that does um like guiding in a Canadian canoe, like paddling down rivers, and he oh, yeah, a yeah. in the front. He makes it. Yeah. Man, I can't remember off the top of my head. I know the videos you're talking about. I can't remember his name yeah. either, but I know. Yeah. 
Um, and I saw a guy in one of his videos bloody do the um, swap hands, like go yeah. from, and he actually, like the duck got up and he sort of like got half or something like that. And he was actually engaging. And then he like swapped while yeah. I was like, shit, that was funky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't very often do it because ducks don't, I mean, because I suppose I only use three rounds in my shotgun anyway, my semi, even though I can use whatever I like down south, I still I still find three rounds is enough for me. Uh, well, even my region here doesn't have a, they've got a uh, factory mag as a restriction. So if it comes as a, as a five shot, you're only allowed to use five. But I just find three is enough. So I don't end up, I don't really change shoulders that much for, for geese, uh, for ducks, sorry. But yeah, that particular day with how they were breaking in that, and I had six rounds in the gun or whatever it was, um, I did find that I had time to swap backwards and forwards and all that. It was, but it was madness that morning. It was uh, was something else. Yeah, the, mm. um, not the most action-packed geese I've ever had, but that was probably the most action-packed I've had for for a while. Yeah, mm. geese. Um, we had a couple of crackers on the geese this season. Just took like uh, we had two days where we shot about eighty or ninety between two of us. And we shot most of the 80 or 90 in about sort of 45 minutes or something. Yeah, just, yeah. To, just total chaos, just drowning in them. And yep. um, it's, I was saying to my mate that I was like, you know, I've um, done a bit of stuff hunting wise, you know, shooting roaring deer and the dog sneaking me right up to deer in the bush. And I've done a bit of bow hunting and long range hunting. And, um, but, as far as like a crazy experience, those crazy geese hunts with um, big mobs like coming right in on top of yes. you it's for excitement, it's just, um, it's pretty epic, eh? Yeah, yeah, no, it can be, especially when you get on on the place where they want to be on the X or, you know, people call it the X or the feed or whatever you want. Yeah. But yeah, when they, they almost can be like big parries at that stage where they, you can have mobs set up so you've got shooting some and there's others in the background and they're still coming and you just all you do is shoot and then lay down and fist whatever ammo you can and you can't just shoot them again and it's just it can be like that and then some days they can just absolutely just laugh at you and not turn up so that's but that's what is enjoyable about goose hunting it's not my favorite type of hunting anymore i'd rather chase my lads especially on the lake, on the big water. Um, I don't know what it is. I, I don't know. I had 20 years of hunting geese, a lot, and I had 30 years now of hunting ducks, and I just, yeah, I don't know. The ducks on the lake is my favourite, especially when it's windy, but it doesn't necessarily have to be windy. Mm. Just um, that environment is cool, yeah. yeah. What's the difference to you, like, when it's windy versus not windy? Um. Well, it makes them fly for a start, especially on the lake. But you still have ducks fly when you're on the lake. If you're on a pond or whatever, you'll notice they, they fly for, for whatever it is, especially when it's cold. Um, but if you get a good nor'wester, they'll still fly, which is not generally cold. Um, but I love watching ducks flying in the wind. I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Oh, just, <laughs> man, when you see them, especially when they're cupped up, coming in the decoys and they sort of dance around a bit in the wind and all that sort of stuff. Man, even in the off-season, I love watching it. At, at home here, I've got ducks that's, that live here. Um, I might have two or three that live here, or I might have 30 sometimes, you know. This year, I've only had probably up to, I think I had 15 under my acorn trees coming in and eating the oak, 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 oak trees. But watching them fly around in the spring or whatever when it's windy and or you know when they're chasing hens and stuff like that the wind just uh i don't know i just love it just yeah, like, so, you, so, yeah. 
So it's, I mean, everyone knows that duck shooting can be easier in the wind. So it's not necessarily a hundred percent about that because you shoot more when it's windy, like because the ducks actually fly different. Yeah, they well to me they do, and I just love how they how they move in the wind and how they, I mean, in geese do it as well. They can move side to side like that and just check your decoys out, and you get to watch mm. them more. And I don't know, I just yeah, <laughs> you can't beat the wind as far as I'm concerned. And then on the big water, you get all sorts of different variables that get chucked in with weather, with different weather and just different things that you've got to figure out where you go a different wind and different conditions and even different strengths of wind where you might go and there's so much to it. But um, yeah, that's probably another subject, but probably going down a bit of a track there. But yeah, um, yeah it's the wind or I don't know, just... Even the geese and flying in the wind, they just take a long time to move and they just they can glide up there for ages if they want to, you know. Um, just and just check you out, just see what's happening. And if you can get geese to come in on a windy day, I think you're doing you're doing extra good. Once you calm day, they can still hang around and do what they want to do because geese have got they probably got more control in the air than what a duck has got for what they want to do. They they are and they're so smart too, a goose. Uh, unless you're on a feed, <laughs> unless yeah. you're on an X, and then I know um, they get a bit silly. But we target the geese big time. I was really lucky uh, year before last, and this year just gone. But starting off, because uh, I only started hunting geese a couple of years ago, um, I mucked around shooting ducks like right from a kid. But um, uh, and I actually my very first goose hunt, three of us shot ninety. And I went out with a um, young mate of mine, Josh Lang, and he knows he's knows quite a bit about. He had it all sussed, and he had it scouted out, and he knew the wind direction yep. and where they were coming, and what. And he had we were right on the X and everything. Yep. And um, so it's really just been a case of of repeating that over and over. But um, we target the geese on the wind big time, and um, it does a few things for us, but. Um, one of the biggest things is it screws them over. So if it's a nice, calm day, they'll fly much higher and they'll come right over and have a good look and they can cruise over and loop back around yep. and come in different angles and all of that. Yep. Um, but, yep. And there's a few other parts of it too. I always try, I clicked on to try and get at the very back of whatever, whatever area they, you know, like the very back edge of the X so they don't want to come in and go over top of you. Yeah. Um, and then if it's windy and you set up so they're flying straight into the wind, they just have it, it screws them over. That they they just decide where they want to go. They seem to stay lower and they can't be right up here, get a good look at you. They just come in low and they've yep. they haven't really got anywhere else to go and they just come in and land right in front I, of you. It just I think they they lose their Depth, depth perception a little bit too and I mean, and it, when it's calm they can get above you a little bit and look down on your your lay down blinds yeah um or any faces that might not be covered up properly or whatever like that you know um mm. yeah yeah <laughs> they're yeah. tricky so like yeah man you can have streaks where they just laugh at you pretty much and they just yeah they just figure it out so easy. But you're right, though. You got and wind covers up your shots as well, because they don't hear it Big as well. Time. Even if even yeah. if they're coming from downwind, they still don't seem to hear it as much. Just when you're dead calm and echo your net. So yeah. that's what I always say to guys when they're like, "Oh, you know, I've got these these geese that are coming in, and can I hunt them?" And I just try and say, "Man, if you can, just wait for the wind. Wait for 
some sort of win. But yeah. you're saying about being on the X when it's windy, if you are on an X, if you see where they're landing, say 50 yards from a fence or whatever, and you're going to have a gale force and all win the next, win the next day, you want to move downwind from that X a little bit because they'll often come and then land short in the wind because they've just had enough of flying. Like if you've got a 100k uh, yeah. wind or something like that, yeah. they'll just come along and then just go plop as soon as they can and then they'll start walking. So yeah. you really want to be if you're gonna if you think you're only gonna be on an X and you're gonna have a strong wind, you probably want to move forward a little bit. Um, yeah, they, and I've seen them do that landing short. Yeah. But and this is classic because this is how fickle geese can be. You know, like you say, they can screw. Okay, they can be so hard. Yeah. Um, because the other thing is, and I've thought of that and be oh I'll be forward because they're coming from that way, so they're gonna see us and yeah. land. Um, but I've had them go over top of you a lot too. Yeah. Got a veer out the side. They know, you know, they're not dumb. So they're having a good look and they go like right around and go past and over top. Yeah. Just a bit of a bugger, but yeah, they can be yeah. hard. Yeah, they can be yeah. hard. Yeah, no, and, and every little every little group probably has their own little little tricks that they do and stuff like that. And it's really about figuring out what your birds do. So mm. what weeks for us might not work for you and your uh, Bay of Plenty birds and stuff like that. So um, mm. yeah, we... I was pretty lucky to um, have seen Lake Warrapa when I was about 15 or whatever, so it would have been about 95, something like that. That was one of the first ever summer seasons and sort of establishing there was about, I think there was about 1,500 birds, maybe a bit less than that. But back then, the limit was 20, but you were lucky to see a goose flying in the distance, let alone shoot any. So um, that was like that for two or three years probably so I got to see it for, and then it started to get a bit more you'd see a few more and then guys started shooting 15 at a time or and like man if you got in the double digits and I was in, in that sort of late 90s area you were like, like bloody the best thing like everybody knew about it you know mm. all the locals knew and all the guys you know like oh yeah so, so went down there and they got and then some old guys in our club got um, 60 they got three three guys went down there and shot 60 so 20 each so that was a limit and it was just like, man, you guys, <laughs> unreal. And then, and then, yeah, slowly as the limits started to, or well, all the restrictions started to get decreased, because we had a summer season back then. You start in February. It was early, yeah, yeah, first weekend of February till the end of March. Then they had April off, and then you went uh, May till about October. I think it was September, October or something. And then they had the time off between then and through the malt and the breed and all that sort of stuff. And then you start shooting again in February and the limit was 20. And then um, they started to get more and more and they dropped the limit off. They dropped it down. So the only time you couldn't shoot geese was in April. And that was only to give the ducks a little bit of a break. And there was thousands of them down there. Like I think we peaked at four and a half thousand geese on the lake or something like that. And um, we were down there a lot. We had good access on the edge of the lake. We didn't have the only, it wasn't us. Wasn't just us. There was a lot of guys that Jack Latrell, who died recently as well. He was a local legend down there. He was, he was an absolute killer on the geese. Um, and there's a few other guys too. Um, but we had those down there of on Bali Stubble and stuff like that, just off the lake. And again, you'd wait for the wind, wait for a good nor'easter, blow them off the lake onto that Bali Stubble, and you'd just murder them. So, mm. but and then. And then 2011, they stopped, you know, no, not on the license anymore. About 2012, they started culling on, on the Warrapa. And, and 
nothing against them and against the fund that was privately funded culling with helicopters. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing against them because there was so many, it was ridiculous. Um, they culled them down to still, I think this year they didn't do a cull and I'd say that was probably the first time since then they haven't done a cull in the summer down to about 300 birds. Um, this year there was a few more because they didn't do a cull so I wouldn't be surprised to see one this year but I mean I've got nothing against them mm-hmm. doing a cull at all go for it if you if they're eating your livelihood yeah and nothing against shooting geese with a chopper yeah so the, they they were they actually managed to cull them effectively with the helicopter eh? like yep. they give them a good hiding yeah but we're talking 3,000 birds in a cull 2,000 birds in a cull every single yep. year so they just absolutely hammered them but man, uh, that's what you have to do we can we can hunters couldn't do that mm-hmm. um so and all these people that say that they can and we can control them and all that they you can for a certain amount of time when your population is low, but if they start to get high population or people start hunting them when they shouldn't, well, not when they shouldn't, but in calm weather and stuff like that, mm. they start to get uh, educated and they start not turning up when they, you know, not, not getting into patterns, changing paddocks all the time. It come, becomes very hard to shoot them. And then the only way is a milk cow, pretty much. Yeah. 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 Okay. So they're doing it in the malt when they can't fly properly, yep. just bombing them. Yep. Yeah, everyone with a chopper. Sometimes they even had two choppers on on the warrapper, um, shooting for a couple of hours, and they'd just bomb them, just 2,000 birds, um, and be done with it. And they used to pick a lot of them up. We used to see a lot of carcasses around as well in certain areas they couldn't get the tractor to or whatever, but they did pick a lot up with a big four-drive tractor and a big trailer, yeah. Yeah, and then just bury them. But, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I know some – yeah, I know a few spots where there's a lot of geese and and they do get smart and they get bloody difficult and they can be a big problem and i know it's a thing um i know some guys that love geese and and they get really touchy about them being cold or you know a guy said to me like don't bloody talk about geese too much we don't need you know we need to save geese. <laughs> like he just loves geese man and loves yeah hunting, unfortunately you know? yeah unfortunately like Fishing game had with the farmers down in the Warrapa, and they would have had the same on Ellesmere as well. They used to cull every single year. So they used to do a count in the malt, or early in the malt. And so I, we had a, I can't remember what the number was, but it might have been two and a half thousand geese on the Warrapa. So they'd go around and do a count and they'd say, oh, we've got three and a half thousand geese here. So that you're supposed to go and shoot a thousand geese out of the chopper. So there was a lot of people, and I was probably one of them, being a young fellow, not knowing any different, mm. um, would get all up in arms, oh, they shouldn't be doing that, the game birds, there should be hunters that are able to control them, all this sort of stuff. But if we kept our mouth shut back then, in 2005 to 2010, when that all happened, we would still have them as game birds now. So it's just oh, an yeah. unfortunate way. Yeah. Yeah, if if yeah. they'd said, right, you guys can, yeah, your fishing game can control them, keep them at a certain amount, and they'd agreed on it, and everybody stuck to it, they would still be game birds now. But yeah. you can't turn back time, and that's the way it goes. Yeah. yeah. I quite, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, and I'm no expert on game birds, you know, and that's why it's cool having people like you on. Um, but uh, I, and the reason I got into geese is because I was like, holy shit, I can hunt them all year round. And 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 lots of different places. Um, we 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 sort of left our spot, our area in the malt and stuff like that, and we'll we'll get back into them. But um, uh, yeah, that's why I got into them. It's kind of cool. And and I mean, from and again, I'm no expert. I might be wrong about this, but from what I've seen, 
they appear to be pretty widespread and doing quite well. And it's, it's difficult for hunters to really smash them right down and threaten them sort of thing. So um, it seems to be a pretty cool resource that you can have some really good shoots on outside of the duck hunting season, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know there's definitely a lot of areas like we didn't really have when I started hunting them. We used to have to go to the Wairapa to find geese. Mm. Um, and it was two hours drive from from here in the middle of two. Um, now we've got geese all over the place. I mean, they're probably not really on my doorstep, but they are within sort of 20 minutes drive. I can find geese now. Um, so, yeah, and I definitely like, and 10, 15 years ago, they weren't there. And then 10 years ago, there was a few, and now there's a lot around yeah. So is the general consensus that there's more geese now and they're more widespread than it was 10, 15 years ago or ever before? Yeah, yep. I would say so, especially probably in the normal strongholds like the Canterbury and um, down Canterbury and most places like down the South Island and stuff like that, where there's always been plenty, they're probably pretty stable there, but there's, they're moving into a lot of areas, or have moved into a lot of areas where they weren't before. Just mm. plain and simple, they weren't there. So like Taranaki's got geese, um, even back down this side around Wanganui, there's a lot of geese. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get culled, they get shot a lot in the summer. Uh, sorry, in, during duck season by farmers that run a ruthless operation around that area. Um, I won't get into too many details there, but it's, man, they shoot some geese there. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of geese around, even Hawke's Bay, stuff like that, Gisborne, they're, they're everywhere. And even, I don't even know, but there's geese in Ruatoria, a lot of them. Yep. So, yeah. East Cape sounds like right around the East Cape, right back around to Gisborne, the in the Bay of Plenty, they're on the Waikato. The I don't, I don't know where geese aren't. Yeah, no, that's right. They are, they are everywhere now. We don't really have that many in my particular area where I am, which is just north of Fielding in the middle of two. But um, you don't have to drive far and you'll find them. Mm. Yeah. So, and they're yes. pretty, they seem to be pretty good at, but like, uh, as I've hunted geese a little bit over the last couple of years, you hear people talk about, oh, yeah, the, mo- the mob of geese there are in that spot. But then as I start hunting them and then talk to other people and then also been on social media and stuff and people get hold of me, hey, I've seen you've been hunting geese. I'm a, such, I know such and such, the friend of a friend's uncle or whatever has a farm here and he's got a, pond, a lake on little yeah. lake at the back and there's 40 hanging there, like there's... They're all over the bloody place. And, and at 40, because they have very good parents. So they don't breed till they're three years old, I think mm. it is. Off the top of my head. Mm. Round about there anyway. They don't breed they don't breed in their first well, when they're juveniles. Um so the two I think it's about three years old they breed. And but they have five to seven goslings, roughly, maybe more, but you know, average. Um and if they have five to seven, they'll raise five to seven. They don't lose a duck like a mallard hen will lose a duckling always out of she'll have 10 she'll she'll raise eight and if she's doing a good job um she'll always lose some but a, a goose or for a start it's two geese they raise as a, as a pair and man they don't let anything anywhere near their young ones mm. so they they do really well there and then so you can have a population explosion you might have 30 or 40 like you say but there might be 50 percent of the population doesn't breed so you've got the pairs off making a few here and there. Every year, some of that population that can't breed becomes eligible to breed. So then you get the population explosion. 
Mm. So you get you might have eighty percent of all of a sudden, well, maybe not because it's the young ones are coming through, but you get more and more able to breed every year. So then all of a sudden you go from eighty to three hundred just within two or three years, yeah. uh, four years or something like that. And that's where they um, people people say that a lot. Oh, we just had a few for a few years, and now we've got hundreds. You know, and that's just that just that thing that they take a lot of mature, and once they start breeding, they're off. Yeah, yeah, it's a real exponential growth thing eh? they sort of yep. you take a while to build up and they get to a certain size and just boom yeah yep. but then they'll also sort of breed to food population food food source and then they've got a lot of food they'll keep breeding if they find that they start to run out of food probably their fertility drops or whatever and they don't, mm. they don't breed quite as much but they'll still keep up like if you cull 300 out of a 700 population they'll replace that 300 every year yeah 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 so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's bloody fun. I've been I've really, and I've had the same thing where like I really enjoyed the goose hunting, super freaking addictive and exciting. Um, but then I, we've had days too where, where we've like this, the second day we had that big shoot um, this season. And then it was like, man, this is, this is a lot of geese, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of, and they're big, heavy, bloody birds. And yeah, it's a, it's quite the big drama, um, yeah. but yeah, it's definitely fun. Um, do what about swans on Ellesmere? I well, there's plenty there, but we don't we don't really shoot them that often because they're so big and heavy. Um, and our little boats, I take up way my too much room. We do shoot geese though, so it's a bit of a you know, bit of a trade off. But geese are a little bit more. I mean, yeah, we just don't. I don't want to eat the swan in the first place, so I don't really shoot. You know, um, and then I like. I don't mind seeing them. I like taking photos of them and stuff like that. So if I see a swan coming, they decoy really well to my big swan decoys I use. So yeah. some days I do, some days I don't want to know. But um, yeah, generally we don't shoot them. Every now and then we will if it's a particularly quiet day or whatever, or we're, I don't know, having a social day in the mama or whatever, and the swan comes over, we might shoot it, especially if it's high. <laughs> Bit of a challenge. But um, yeah, we we normally they normally get a free pass from us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I've never shot a swan. Um, yeah. and, uh, yeah, they're a big bird, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Especially the mature ones. We used to have our Queen's birthday trip. We used to have our club trip was a, the longest swan competition. So we'd all have, we'd shoot swan and someone would come in with this massive thing. Like sometimes they can be like four and a half, five feet long, you know, like from, from feet on the ground to the, to the tip of the beak by the time you got the head stretched out. Man, we had just marks on the wall in the hut to say, oh, this was this high and they get a trophy. It was just a bit of fun, but it was, you know, it was, yeah. it was good fun. We did it for a few years. It's quite good, but normally that's, um, normally take any young fellas down there, we set them up and get pursuits and swan. And I don't really, I just rather help them out or whatever, you know, set yeah. them in the right place and right wind and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. There's a few areas around here with a lot of swans um, and they're not that easy to get, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't know if you still have, but you used to have the big, big um, swan drive, didn't you, on the on the harbour? Yeah. Yeah. Do they still do that, or is that stopped now? I think off and on, but I think they had a lot of issues with, um, oh, like just people complaining about the shooting and being mean to the swans and leaving shell cases in the harbour and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The but, shell cases is fair enough, but they'd be the first ones to complain about swan shit every year as well. So, yeah. 
it's a hard one and there is thousands in the harbor there and they and they come and go and build up and off and on a little bit but um the they just become a real hazard because eh? with the airport and stuff um yeah the council's not big on them and uh, i actually know a guy that's sort of talking to the council and trying to work it out and we're always sort of off and on there's a few people off and on trying to work out how to shoot them and what to do and yeah. um yeah and it it it's either a bit of a drive, like push them up somewhere and then get shooters all spread out and then push push them past, uh, past the guns or or um, working out something to do with either the wind or the tide and when they're moving from A to B, you know, and, yeah. and um, do that. I haven't really heard of people decoying them um, because they're not, yeah, they don't bloody move that much. They're just in one spot. Do they just feed on in the harbour? Is there some sort of weed or something there that they can eat so they don't really go to paddocks? Or? They don't. I don't think they really go to paddocks. And I think they eat a lot of stuff out of the harbour. And I'm no expert. I might be totally wrong about this. But um, I know some definitely go to some paddocks. But I think they do. They eat. A, but I think they also eat a lot of um, like little crabs and bloody... Someone said something about them eating baby flounder. Um, I don't, I, and I might be way off on that claim. Well, could happen. Could happen. Yeah. I yeah. think they do eat a lot of crap out of the out of the harbour, off the flats, and that. But um, I've never yeah. heard of big mobs of swans all like flying to paddocks around here. But I, yeah. there may be. I might be totally wrong. Well, they can because, like, in before the Waheni storm on Lake Ellesmere. 1968 or 1964, something like that. Apparently, there was 70,000 swan lived on that lake. So I don't know how many live there now. Maybe 15,000, probably. But yeah. they all they all lived on this grass bed that grew off the lake shore. So they just eat that all the time. And when the big storm came through, all that grass bed got ripped off the bottom of the lake and killed it. So the population just went because there's no food. And I've also been to Fewell Spit and seen thousands of swan there is and they're the same thing they eat this weed and you go walk around the edge on the beach where they are they're like 200 meters offshore but there's like all these lawn clippings basically where they've eaten a section out of the grass and all the lawn clippings are just well the leftover part has just floated up on the shore so they can eat grass and all that sort of weed that grows in even in salt water obviously um, mm. they can still live so and there's not much like in that area there's not really a place they can go i don't think there's not much farm coastal type stuff it's pretty hilly and i wouldn't really think they're heading off to to graze on farmland that often so they must be able to live there as well mm, the geese do it um but i think you're right man and i and i think i know of that lawn clipping stuff that i've seen in the harbor heaps of it yeah. and yeah. there is there is a few different gra funny grassy bloody things in, around yeah. and um i did go for a bit of a mission and there's different big bars and you know, there's like big sandbars right out in the middle of the bloody harbour. And a lot of it's quite hard to get to because it's all big, massive, long flats that that you can't actually take a, a lot of boats out in and it, and it gets yeah. real shallow and sketchy. And it's they use that big harbour and all the big flats as like cover, you know, because it's actually a, a little bit of a logistical nightmare hunting them out there. Yeah, it's probably soft too, is it, out there in the mud? Uh, oh, you definitely don't go. I it, it's because Ellesmere people like ride their bloody four wheelers around in the lake in that, eh? 
Yep. Yeah, we ride mm. for ages out in the lake sometimes. Well, if the lake's high, you can't, obviously. But, the, yeah, if the lake's at a reasonable level, you can ride at some places. You can ride K and a half from the bank. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can't do that that I'm aware of in the in the Tauranga Harbour. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's difficult, but, um, yeah, there are ways of doing it. Well, um, tell us about your boat, man, your layout boat blind. Thing. So <laughs> I can go right through. I built. I used to stand in my eyes and watch ducks land on little sandbars like you're talking about the Tower of Hubble. Um, back in those days, I never hunted Ellesmere. It was always Wairapa. I didn't, hadn't been to Ellesmere since 2000 or 10 years ago now. So 2012 was the first time, 2013 or whatever. Um, so must have been about 2008, I reckon. I was like watching ducks land on sandbars and stuff like that. And you know, man, I want to be able to hunt where they want to be rather than trying to drag them over here. So I built, I built this plywood box that was uh, 900 wide and 2.2 long, but it had a 400 mil dry box in the end of it for putting your gear or whatever. Um, and it was just a tub, just 300 mils high, um, just a tub with scrub on it. And it just drag it out and weighed a bloody too much, weighed it too much. Just... <laughs> <laughs> I had to I had to get a I got a, brought a trailer and I had to get the trailer to the edge of the lake to put it in the water because I couldn't drag it along the dry land or anything like that. Back then we had discovered that we could um, put good tow ropes on things and, and pull them with a the bike. So it was all by hand or get a trailer out with the bike and man we used to get stuck all over the place. But anyway, so two or three years in that shot a lot of birds in that. That was good fun. And then we wanted to make something that would look like part of the water rather than a bush. So we looked at basically this boat is designed on what the Americans use to build or to shoot um, sea ducks. So open water, open water style layout boat. So it's built like a, a upside down, bloody like a pumpkin seed or whatever. And then underneath is flat and then you've got a drop box. So it's all, so you lay in the drop box. There's only probably 180 mils out of the water. Mm. So and it's all it's painted. Well, you Americans all paint this grey, but that's because they're all out to sea, basically, and the water's probably more of a grey colour. Or um, and, the, and those those divers fly like a metre off the water, so the water looks grey, and the boat just blends in. So my boat is painted like a greeny colour because that's what colour Ellesmere and Wairapa both are. They're sort of like a olive green sort of a colour. So um, the first boat I built was all plywood bottom, and then aluminium frame bent in a big u-shape and then fiberglass over top of that and then you know, and a fiberglass underneath it as well because we by that stage we'd figured out we could sled all our gear with the motorbike put all our gear in it and pull pull that boat with with the motorbike so um i'd fiberglass the bottom of it but i'd wear through the bottom of the fiberglass in the season by dragging it around while it, and yeah so i built that and the second year we went to Lake, Lake Ellesmere, I built my first boat, uh, my first open water boat anyway, um, which would have been 2013 or 12 or something. And then had that for two or three years and decided I wanted, that was 1,200 wide, that boat, by 2.6 or 2.7 long or something like that, just a big oval shape. And then I decided I wanted to have wider so I could have the angle to the water because it was quite a sharp angle to the water. I wanted to go wider so I could make it flatter to the water and longer as well so I could make all those angles flatter 
so I did that. And that 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 boat, that's the one I've got now. That's aluminium bottom, so I don't have to worry about dragging, you know, busting through the bottom of it. Um, and then the same on the top, aluminium frame, fiberglass top. So the only downside with it is it weighs 87 kilos. So it's the same. It's too heavy to drag anywhere. You've got to use the bike or you've got to get it in the water. As soon as you get it in the water, it's fine. But I'm on a mission now to build a complete aluminium one that's going to be probably sub 50 kilos, hopefully. Um, that's my that's my next goal. Hopefully for next season, I'll have it. So uh, it's going to cost me a wee bit, but it happens, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so that build the whole thing out of alloy. Yeah, I got a mate that's pretty handy on the welder, aluminium welder, and we've he's already built a couple. We mate Andrew that was on NZ Hunter TV with his boat. His boat's designed off mine, basically. Um, so our mate, our mate built that boat for him, and um, so his. But that's quite straight sided, uh, and I want mine completely oval like my boat I've got now because I think it looks better in the sun and stuff like that. Cleans right in. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to make it all out of aluminium. So it's going to be a bit of a challenge building the top of it, but I've got a bit of a, a few ideas and mm. I'm doing it. I don't really need to because his one works fine, but I'm doing it for the challenge. So, yeah, and I, I just love building my own stuff. But just, yeah, it's quite cool. Um, just building, having an idea, coming up with a design and how I built my first open water layout boat was not what I had in mind at first. When I first started designing it, I thought I'd do it a certain way and ended up changing everything. So, um, well, no, the end result was the same, but how I did it, how I constructed it is, is a lot different than what I thought it was going to be. So, mm. so yeah, so coming up with design, designing it, making it, building it, and then using it and hunting with it is pretty cool. Yeah. So, when yeah. when your mate makes that new one, can you just get him to make a spare? Just get him <laughs> yeah. to make two. <laughs> if I can get this one right, so but you got to be you got to be uh, you got to be aware that there's 87 kilos, so it weighs as much as as your average person. So you got to try and drag that beast around. So, but I've got a um, I've got a quad, a good Honda 500 that I just tow it, just put it on the table and just pull it up with gear and away you go. So drag it, yeah, yeah. But it is heavy, like to move around by yourself. It's just it's too heavy. I'm forty, nearly forty-two now. I'm too old for that sort of carry on. <laughs> so, <laughs> I saw. I've, I've been seeing some um, videos of. I don't know how long they've been doing it. Of some young guys in the states, and they've got like you know how fishing kayaks are getting better and better, and they're getting these really wide base, like quite flat, big kayaks, real stable, bloody things. And um, they're setting their kayaks up big time. So they've just got a big kayak yeah. that's got basically like a um, layout blind on top of it, you know. So yeah. it's more, it's not so much going to make it look like water. It's, um, you know, they're, they're tucking into a bit of crap on the side of the lake yeah. and um, yeah. shrubbing it up. And, yeah, it's a very sort of quick, handy way of hunting that, that could obviously be really effective. Um, but yeah, how you're doing it and you're just like blending yourself in with the water and you yeah. actually put a couple of big swan, um, yeah. big swan shell. Well, they actually used to be goose shells, but they're, they're not massive. They're like probably 900 long, something like that. Mm. Um, I've cut, I've scalloped them a little bit so they fit the side of the boat. So they don't sort of even, you know, I don't worry about heads in them anymore. I used to put heads in them, but I gave up on that after a little while. Cause especially 
I had one with an upright head and I used to have to <laughs> try and look around it all the time because you're lying on your back looking over your guts and then sometimes the, the boat is like right here and then you got the swan silhouettes and that little you know, shell sticking up with a big neck and that so I just I got rid of the heads and the shells so I've got three on the boat and I use a dozen to 17 in the water so I might have 15 to 20 mil, um, swan decoys as such so that just helps the whole boat blend in mm. I used to I hunted two or three years probably two years with no swan shells on my original open water boat um, and then and I used to have if I had birds coming downwind and they were coming low they'd come in no worries at all just straight in well they, had, they didn't know what was going on I can often sit up and shoot and they're still coming in with their wings set you know coming no they don't even see you but I found if I had high birds that circled, they would do one circuit and leave. Yeah. So I put the swan shells on. Andrew suggested it actually, mate. He said, I reckon you should put these on. So we've got them, put them on. And I noticed instantly they just, you can have birds circle you. As long as you stayed still and didn't move, um, or you can move at the right times when they're flying away or whatever. But they, uh, you just get them circle, and that just makes it even better if you can get a high bird that comes past it maybe 80 to 100 metres up, do a circle around behind you, and then you give it the calls at the right time, and it just comes in. Man, that's, yeah, that's pretty, that's cool. You can do that. Yeah, that's awesome, yeah. mate. I um, I started using the same concept, uh, like with the geese, and, and actually with the geese, goose decoys, and instead of being right back from the de- decoys, actually being in the spread, and then um, I got a few extra full bodies and I got these Bigfoot ones, which are quite a big bloody shell with quite a presence to them. Yep. And a couple of other ones, big GHG ones in there. And yeah, I do a bit of a pattern of full bodies, a couple, one on each side, one out the front and a couple behind. And it just totally breaks up the, yep. the outline. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's what I sit in the middle of all my swan decoys. Basically I sit, yeah, when I've only got a dozen, I basically set them pretty much around the boat in a bit of a bit of a shape. So there's a little bit of a tail downwind in that, and then duck decoys are out off the front here and to the left. So you're supposed to pull you to the right, to the ducks to the left, so you can sit up and just shoot them right-handed like normal. But you get those odd ones, like I said earlier, that'll just scoot up the right-hand side and stuff like that. But um, yeah, ideally you get them just straight up, basically off your left foot at about 20 yards. So you just sit up, off dead. There's no chasing or anything like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Normally, you got dead ducks. Yeah, yeah. And you don't use a dog when you're hunting like that. No, My dog at the moment is 14, 13 or fourteen years old, golden retriever. Mm. So he's he's fully retired. He's been for a couple of three years. But I never, I don't have room for a dog in the in the lake, and you don't really need one as such out there, mm. um, because normally you're in maybe knee deep water air on average mm. and, and it's hard bottom so if you shoot something you can you can get after it go pick it up yourself um i probably will get a pup in the next 12 months maybe if i do get one it won't probably be ready for next season by this stage because it's going to be six or eight months old and i think it's a bit young so um but I, yeah, i'm finding i'm hunting in a few places now that I just think, oh, jeepers, I can't go without a dog. And I've always thought, oh, you know, I've got mates that have got dogs and all that sort of stuff. But now I'm in a position where I can sometimes shoot out for a day hunt during the week, during the week if I'm at work or whatever and I don't have much to do. I can, I'm can, i in that position that I can do it sometimes. Um, 
I'm like, well, I can't go to that place because I don't have a dog. I can't go to that place because I don't have a dog, you know. So, um, yeah, I think I probably will get a pup. I'm not really fixed on a breed yet, but I, yeah, I think I probably will get a pup in the next 12 months or so. Mm. Yeah. I guess if you're out on the big open water out on your boat, at least the one big saving grace is you haven't got those ducks landing in cover. They're not. No. They're just yeah. all landing on the water. And I'm, I remember reading in one of your posts that you're a big fan of getting them close, shooting them close. Yep. Um, yep. So, and yeah, if, they, if they're not landing in cover, I get and the water's shallow, so you just get out and go pick them up. Yeah. You don't 100% yeah, well, need one, eh? No, nah, well, the theory is if you shoot them at 20 yards and they don't happen to be dead, because you get the odd wind of one, everybody does. Um, if they hit the water at 20, 25 yards, you can, and they sit up, they just get another shot and they're dead. Another one. So, yep. yeah, so you don't have to chase them too much. If you start shooting at further ranges, which is what I was sort of saying about when on that big day we had, my, my limit pair, um, if you start shooting at further ranges, <clears> you just increase your chance of wounded birds. Yeah. And then it takes you longer to go get that bird. So you shoot something at 35 or 40 and it hits the water, it's at 45, 50, and then it's swimming. So you run after it. You get it, and you're 200 meters from the boat, 250 meters from the boat, yeah. and then you turn around, and normally there's ducks hanging over your boat, like looking at your decoys, and like, man, if I hadn't shot that long range, I would have killed those ones, and I'd be, in, you know, I'd be back in the boat already. Yeah. So that's it. But it's just you've just got to get a different way of thinking, rather than wanting to shoot everything. You've got to go. Well, I don't want to shoot that one. I'll get the next ones that come along. You know. Yeah. So um, it's just about altering your thinking a little bit, rather than killing everything, which is. Like a lot of people talk about the stages of shooting, it's 100% a thing. And, you know, when I was a young fella, I wanted to kill everything as well. And then after a while, you think, well, does it really matter if I go home with eight ducks instead of 10? Or does it matter if I let that one go because I'm not really confident I'm going to kill it, you know? And not saying I never take long shots and stuff like that, but I've got to be pretty confident I'm going to get it. I don't take long shots in the wind nowadays because I can't be bothered chasing after birds. I'd rather just mm -hmm. let that go and then get a bird at 20 yards and kill it. Yeah. yeah, I talk about that uh, and talking about deer stalking and things too in that, um, and you touched on it then, is that, you know, you think, oh, but I'll shoot more if I can take the longer shots. But quite as soon as you make a mistake and now you're chasing a bird yeah. or you're, you're tracking a wounded deer, you're yeah. like, man, I shouldn't have taken that. That's right. <laughs> and because you end yeah. up losing more yeah. birds That's through right, making yeah. mistakes. So it's yeah. you end up picking because you've lost a deer or you lost a duck or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, you've just got to think about it and you've just got to get used to it, I suppose, because you've got to make that split season, uh, split second decision on when you're actually going to shoot and be the mm -hmm. same with deer. You know, you've got to, you've got to say, well, am I going to get this? Am I going to kill this? Am I going to spend more time chasing it than it's worth? Um, do I just let it go? You know? And mm -hmm. so, yeah, but when you've got, decoying ducks at 20 yards there's really no question you're going to kill it you know you're going to sit up you're going to shoot so but yeah you've got to be ready to to shoot if that bird puts his head up again on the lake if not I have a dog I just flatten it again I just give it another one it doesn't matter ammo is not that expensive it doesn't really doesn't matter you know I don't I don't keep a tally on my ammo it doesn't I don't keep an average or a percentage or whatever like that so if I use an extra round or two shooting a wounded bird I'm not worried you know? mm. so but I generally have dead birds anyway, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I hate. I, I won't like. I've seen it. Um, you know, shooting stubble on the on the land. It's a shocker. Um, like without a dog. 
because like you say, yeah, if you take a long shot and it's a bit of a sailor and it lands right on the edge of shotgun range or just out of shotgun range, and then once they yep. start walking, you can't catch up with them on foot. No. And um, they can move faster than you can. And when they're out of shotgun range, they're just gone. A dog solves that straight away. Yep. Um, yep. But yeah, on, on you get the old walking powery that gets too far and even a mallard. And once they get too far away, and if they can do a bit of a bit of a flapping, you know, get get a wing, yep. can't take off, but they use their wings and do a bit of a run, and um, yep. they're gone, man. Yeah, no, it's um, and, it, and I mean, I I always have someone with me with a dog when I need one like that, like in a situation mm. like that, I don't shoot on paddocks very often, but I normally would have a dog with me, yep. or on a river or a pond or whatever like that, where you could potentially lose ducks to cover and stuff like that. I always have, or float off down the river, there's always a dog with me. So, um, yeah, mate of mine's, you know, a lot of guys, mates have got dogs, or my father-in-law's actually got a pretty good dog that I used a bit last season as well. So, yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's one of those things. I can't, I can't, oh, well, that's why I don't have a pup now, is I couldn't justify having one and not using it because mm. the old boy I've got now, He's only really a retriever. He's not a really good hunter. I had a good hunter, a good GSP when I was younger. Um, she's a good duck dog, a good pheasant dog, and a pretty good duck dog. Um, but yeah, now I use, I used to use him open weekend, and I'd use him two or three weekends during the season. The rest of the time, I'd be somewhere where I didn't need the dog on the boat, or I'd be, well, I don't take a dog on the Ellesmere trip because we often hunt on the lake from dark till dark um, or we get back at two or three o'clock in the afternoon and the birds just locked, the dogs just locked up all day. We don't mm -hmm. night shoot down there so, you know, don't really use one. A couple of mates do take them here and there when we go down but um, we don't really, we find sometimes they're more hassle because you've got to try and think, oh, I've got to go back and let the dog out for a piss or mm. got to, you know, all that sort of stuff. And it's cold down there. Like compared to the North Island, it is cold. So that's mm. another factor you've got to take in rough weather. We don't use dogs anyway on the lake when it's when it's blowing a good southerly and there's, or a nor'wester and there's, you know, half foot waves or foot waves or whatever like that. It's just not the place for a dog. So um, they can get drowned or, you know, taken over by a big wave or whatever and, and pump like that. So just not really worth the hassle for the amount of work you put into training your dog. You want to look after it. So mm. yeah. Yeah. Um what sort of gun do you shoot and what's your what's your take on guns, ammo, chokes? I shoot a brood A four hundred. Um that's my third brood now. So I had a I had the standard A four hundred. I had a, I actually had the extrema two first, which was a good gun. I wore that out pretty much in about seven or eight years. It was starting to play up a little bit. I did fix it myself. I sent it off to the gunsmith, sent it to Beruta. They couldn't figure it out. Then I figured out there was a little a little burr on the inside of the tongue that comes up when you when your ammo gets fed up into the mag, and that was buzzing up how it was feeding up. So I fixed it, sold it to a guy for pretty cheap, and brought a standard A400, and then when the moss shooting and Christchurch happened and they did the buyback, I sold that for ridiculous amounts of money. The government bought a new A400 plus, so... Um, <laughs> Just crazy, but I don't think we should get into that. But anyway, um, it's a hot tip. Hot tip. <laughs> a lot of mates did it. We call our A four hundreds the um, the government edition A four hundred plus. Yeah, at least someone got something out of that whole gun uh, scheme. I I reckon my gun was probably worth a thousand bucks 
to the open market, it was pretty rough. It spent its life in a layout boat or a lay down blind or just not much coating left on it, scratches all in the stock, and, and they just get a hard life out there. So I reckon it was probably worth a thousand bucks, and I got two thousand four hundred and seventy bucks or whatever. So, how, how does that work? How are they buying semi automatic shotguns when they're not illegal? How does I don't know? I, I suspect. Maybe they had them on there to try and boost their numbers of guns they took off the street <laughs> to make it to make it safer. Because um, there's, I know a lot of people that did it because they're on the list, so there's nothing they could do. And I sold two mega extensions and my gun, um, and I paid five hundred dollars cash for my brand new one um, with that money as well. And really, there's no difference in the guns, so it was it was a ridiculous exercise. But hey. That's what I thought about done. not doing it because it was all taxpayers' money, but uh, in the end, I was like, "Well, <laughs> you got a loophole, might as well use it." So, yeah. and I don't know many many people that did it. Yeah, mm. I missed out yeah. on that one, but anyway, yeah. When it was, I was going to upgrade the gun. I was going to do one more season with my old gun, and then I was going to upgrade anyway. So I thought, "Well, why not take it, take the opportunity?" So, um, but yeah, there's seven of us in our main group that hunt around this area, and we hunt the Lake Warrior in the first week and all that, and we've all got. A400s mm. and I think there's one standard one left he didn't swap it he didn't he didn't do the government edition um but the rest of us all got them so is the so the <laughs> A400 is that the flagship Beretta yeah yeah that's the A400 plus is the new one now yep. so I've just got a black one I don't really believe in camo black never goes out of style so yeah yeah um and then I for years, I took the piss out of my mate's shoes and patent masters and all that sort of stuff. And then I got given one by a guy um, on Facebook. He said he was had one to move on. So I messaged him and said, oh, what the hell? I'll try it. I've got nothing to lose. So I said, how much do you want for the choke? And he said, I'll just send it to you. I thought, well, can't lose. I put it in and forgot about it and shot a couple of ducks. I was like, man, that was good. I was expecting those. Like, I shot one that was quartering away at about 40 yards up the bum. Boom, stone dead. And I thought, maybe that choke's got something, you know? And I didn't really, I, at that stage, I was still not sold. And then shot another couple at pretty pretty good ranges. And and that calm days and all that sort of stuff. And we're on open water and all that. So I thought, oh, well. Um, so then one weekend, we were, I took my dad and my father-in-law over to a little spot I've got. And um, father-in-law had not really had much of a good opening weekend for two years in a row so I said to him you shoot and my dad is the similar ages about mid-60s so I said you guys shoot I'll clean up after and my mate Andrew was here with his dog so they were shooting and I was just cleaning up birds and I was shooting some good range birds with this with this pattern master and just two and three quarter inch steel was all I use and I was like man I would be not confident in killing that duck with a normal choke so there's got to be something in these things so i don't know what it is they say short and short and short string and all this sort of stuff i don't really know but they seem to work so mm. i haven't taken it out since i put it in so <laughs> i use yeah. a um i use a kicks and yeah. um and in, in in my whole sorting out my shooting over the last couple of years um because i i had a big break away from duck shooting and then i come back to it like real quick and fast and um yeah. i had some serious sorting out to do on the shooting front and um that was other than getting my gun fitting right um using a, a good aftermarket choke was one of the biggest changes that i did and yeah. i've tested it back and forth a lot 
and um, one of the most interesting tests I did with it was a um, I shot 120 pigeons one day, and uh, I started out in the layout blind, and then I ended up just sitting on this deck chair, like no blind, nothing, and they just kept coming and coming and coming. And um, I had this big box of random ammo and all of my chokes there. And you had all the time in the world. You could move. You could do whatever you want. And they just kept coming. And um, I actually used extra full kicks. And um, I went from um, modified to improved cylinder, back to the extra full, back to went round and round in circles, trying them all. And it was a noticeable difference, man. Even on pigeons, with all yeah. that was the biggest difference. Even changing ammo um, from three inch to threes to twos to fours to lead to steel to that extra full kicks was just, just, just way less woundies. Every time yeah. I opened that choke up, I got more wound. Mind you, that's on pigeons; they're a small bird. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, every time I put that extra fill in, everything just started dying, you know. So yeah, I don't know. yeah. Mm. Well, a lot of people get get talk themselves into saying, "Oh, I've got a tight choke, so I can't shoot close birds and all that sort of stuff." But you can still shoot. I mean, I've patented my patent master in relation to my half choke, standard brooder half choke, and that at thirty yards, they're basically the same, same like a thirty inch circle. They're both got very similar amounts of pallets in them and same, basically the same size spread. So they're not all that tight. I can shoot ducks at 15 yards in my boat with the pattern master in and I can shoot them 40 plus. Are you shooting full or modified or? That's a co-black duck, which is, I don't even know. I suppose, I think it's supposed to be relative to a half choke but okay. it, or modified, but it, but it shortens down your shot string apparently. Um, I'm I, not saw someone sold that on did, it. I saw a crew that did a massive test and they found out that the shot string was a load of shit. They did. Yeah. I, I think they were using a high-speed camera or something. Yeah. And they actually verified that. That the, I, I may be wrong, but I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure the shot string thing was a load of shit. Yeah. But, um, but the patterns were improved. There was just a little bit. Um, and, and I think what it was, I was surprised too when I looked into that, that it's not like, and you were beginning to make the point then, it's not like a full choke's got this tiny little thing at 25 yards and a, and a improved cylinder's got this huge group. The yeah. differences are actually very small. Yeah. Um, Especially when you're talking that close range, like if you can't shoot a duck at 20 yards with a cylinder choke or a full choke, you can probably miss it with a cylinder as well. Exactly. Um, it's, not, yeah. it's not that much, yeah, unless you're unless you are only just missing or something like that, you're not going to, it's not going to change all that much. You're still going to put it in the right place. So, um, and yeah, I, I struggled with that shot string thing as well, because even a long shot string, and this is what I always just say to my mates before I put one in, a long shot string will go past from start to finish, like a 10 foot shot string will go past a certain point at 30 yards and point oh. Oh, two, six of a second or something like that. I was like, well, how do you think it's going to make a difference? So, but mm-hmm. I don't know what, I don't know whether it's in my head or whatever, but there, I, I just put this choke in and forgot about it. And after a while, I was like, man, this is actually, I'm killing ducks with this and this is good, you know? So I don't know. What, I'm not really there. What I found doing a lot of research on it, and it seems to me that the main difference is it's about 10 to 15% of the pellets 
and the and the and the the, uh, the really good aftermarket chokes are slightly better for it, and a full choke is slightly better for it. All it's doing is um, you're getting an extra ten or fifteen. Like in in your spread, you've got the percentage of your spread that's like a really good killing pattern, nice yep. tight dense patterns, and outside that you have a bit of a ring of these looser. Yep. Um, looser pellets. Yep. A full choke just gets an extra 10% of those more into that main pattern. Yeah. Yep. So with 10% extra of them in these for one close up, it's a it's almost the same size pattern, but there's more yep. it tightens it up a little bit. Yeah. And um and that 10% just probably gives you a better pattern just a little bit further out. And I think another big one that I saw heard a lot of was sort of donutting, you know, where um, where maybe some standard chokes are more likely to, um, you know, have yeah the you know a donut style pattern with a couple of bigger gaps in the middle yeah. and a bit more dense around the outside where the really good aftermarket chokes should give you a bit more of a uniform pattern. But I don't know. But I found the same as you that I. I just find it easier to kill birds with a good choke. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that um, that donating, that's often you get that with a fast, like fast three-inch ammo or fast three-and-a-half inch or whatever you want to use that or anything anything that's stoked up in speed and then you mm. over-constrict a little bit. So you over-choke it and then often the speed and steel doesn't compress like lead so then it goes poof like that and you get a big hole in the middle. So that's something you need to be careful of. But, but if, I mean... You can pattern and all that, but really, if you find a combination of your gun, your choke, and your ammo and your ability that works, just stick with it. Don't change it unless you have to. So, yeah, I, I only shoot two and three quarter inch steel. And normally threes, sometimes two. But I don't, I don't use force. But I, mean, I shoot a lot of ducks with force, so I'm not, you know. Uh, but if you, if you find a, a combination, I like Falcon Ammo, 35 brands out there. I mean, everybody's got, and that's why there's so many brands because everybody's got their own preferences, you know. So, yes, you still there? Yeah, uh, yeah, for, uh, yeah. Something happened there, my at my end, but. You're back. Yeah, there's something flashed up on the screen saying about poor internet or something. Poor internet connection. Yeah, it froze for a second and the picture went away and then you popped back. But I haven't yeah. had any gap. You've frozen a couple of times, but there hasn't been any gaps. Like it picks up right. again at the right spot. So it's probably my um, average average reception on there. Even our Wi Fi is not that good sometimes. Mm. So, um, yeah, so, but yeah, I don't, I don't personally believe you need even a three inch round in, in steel I mean you've got say if you've got a say if I like that Falcon 35 gram um, two and three quarter so if you use a 35 gram two and three quarter or a 36 gram three inch and number threes you've got seven more pellets in that three inch mm. than what you had in a two and three quarter and that's only seven that leaves your barrel not what seven what happens to hit your 30 inch or your pellet and your, you know, your bird or whatever so you're not really gaining a lot at all by using, I mean, you can. There is a thirty-two gram two and three quarter, so then you have got four grams more, and mm. a thirty-six gram three inch. But I don't, yeah, I don't see the value. And I, I did buy some three inch one time, and well, I used to use all three inch really. To be fair, 
Um, but, I, but I started using that fair stuff because I was watching a lot of people around in the country use it. A lot of guys, oh, I'll just give it a try. And at that stage, it was at Farmlands for 130 bucks for a slab. So I brought it and I thought, well, <laughs> it's already way cheaper than everything else. So we'll see. But I had, I went on a goose hunt with a mate of mine out of the Warrior Coast. It was three of us. And it was that, it was Cyclone Pam a few years ago. Come through, it was a big southerly. So he had a barley stubble paddock. Um, and there was a estuary, um, a small estuary where they roosted just behind us to the to the south. So upwind, um, only 400 metres probably, but they obviously couldn't hear us. It was it was pissing with rain and a real good southerly, like 100 k's plus, right on the coast. And so we were just rain just pouring down on us in wind, and we are sitting there with our hoods up, and blinds closed, and you see these geese go over us like that, and then so you at least sit down properly, get your hood down and all that, and they just turn about a hundred meters and just come back to us. And I shot, I we shot eighty geese that day or whatever, and I shot with little two and three quarter inch steel threes, which should be too light for geese, but I was dropping them at, at pretty happy ranges. So I was like, from then on, I was like, this stuff is good. So and that's what, but it works for me. You know, I'm confident in it, which is uh, half the battle with shot downing. Um, and it works to my, my gun and it obviously goes okay through the choke too so I, I'm keeping with it yeah. yeah. and I've shot geese, ducks, swan, berries, whatever all with two and three quarter inch steel yeah. I've been shooting geese with um, it's probably probably quite unorthodox but I've been shooting geese with two and three quarter inch four lead fours yeah, they're a good dense pattern on a decoy geese here yeah. Good dense pattern and uh, an extra full choke, and yep. um, n- not that good on range. Like you got to shoot them pretty close, yep. um, but uh, you just get a lot of head and neck shots, you know. So it kills kills very very well and and close, and it doesn't kick too much. And um, I don't have an extension or anything, so I get an extra round in the mag and stuff like that. Yeah, um, it was just so like I I used them on that first goose shoot. And I wasn't really taking that shoot that seriously. And it was just what I had. And I thought, oh, I'll just take this. And um, and we had heaps of geese turned up and it killed killed them really well. And then so and I had then I got heaps of that stuff and I've used that quite a bit. A mate was shooting them with uh three inch steel twos, just because that's all in that they were falcon. Yeah. Um, that stuff was killing them real good. Probably yeah. better than better than my lead. Um but I think you you hit the nail on the head with um, confidence is such a huge one. Like it does, you can, it doesn't matter as long as you are confident with it, it's working for you, and you know that it works, and and your shooting is okay, and it works, <laughs> then you're fine, you know. And and yeah, different things work for different people for different reasons. But um, yeah, I've been shooting uh, on steel. I use three inch. Um, and I quite like it. Um, I've been using quite a lot of BMP. That's the lead that I've been using too. Um, yeah. yeah, that two and three quarter. Good round. Yeah. 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 That BMP extra um, two and three quarter lead. And I want to move away from using lead even on paddocks and try to use more steel if I can. Um, that three inch number two steel that Ben was shooting was that was going good, man. He was. Yeah. He was knocking stuff around with that. Um, and, and I use BMP three inch steel, um, twos and threes, um, 36 gram. And I guess the three inch has just got a bit more speed, right? 
Yeah, to a degree, but then don't fall into a speed trap because yeah, there's been studies that have shown that even in fast stuff, your fast stuff and you slow, the fast stuff slows down faster. The slow stuff keeps going at a at a better speed for longer, and at mm-hmm. thirty yards, they're basically doing the same speed. Yeah. So yeah, fair enough. Your fast stuff might get a get a little boost in the beginning and get there. It might yeah. be there faster, but at, by the time you get out there, they got the same energy, same speed. So if you shoot a a fast um, number three and a slow number three, they got pretty much the same energy by the time they get at thirty yards. So you get a bit downrange, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but again, it's if you're happy with it, you're confident with it. You know? Don't let anybody say it's no good because yeah. you just shoot. You know. You've got to be confident in your ammo, and that's that's the big. If you if you load up your ammo, oh, I've got crap ammo. You, you might as well just throw it in the lake because you're probably not going to hit whatever you you know. Mm-hmm. You're not going to. You might shoot a few, but a lot of the time, you once you get confident in something, it's it's away. You know, as long as it is not just pack the sand or whatever. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but if you yeah, once you once you get the feeling that it's good, you you can do you can do anything you like with it. Yeah. yeah, and I did bounce around a little bit um, with some of the lighter three-inch loads um, that are meant, that are going really, really fast. I use the thirty-six gram three-inch loads, which aren't they got a bit of speed there, but they're not absolutely honking like some of the light ones. So it's sort of a bit of the middle of the road. But that's what I landed on exactly. I, I had some good shoots with that thirty-six gram three steel two and threes. Like sweet, yep. that's that's me. Yeah, yeah. Um, that BMP is a good round. I used to use their thirty-three gram stuff a bit, three inch. That was a bloody good round too. I used to like that. But um, since I moved on to Falcon, I sort of used up the rest of the BMP and haven't bothered getting any more. But that's a good round too. And a lot of guys do like that thirty-six. I just never really bought any of it to try it. But a lot of guys do like that three inch BMP thirty-six. But um, yeah, you've just got to find what works for you and your gun and your confidence and and stick with it yeah 100 yeah, percent, man um yeah hey what about yeah so probably the one thing that we touched on earlier um on the big water and we sort of went past it was like set where you set up and why on the wind and the direction and stuff like that yeah yeah well there's lots of things that you just learn over time i suppose so and, and different bits of water will tell you different will have different things that happen as well we was on the warapper and norwester at the bottom end of the lake where we shoot is the bees knees and we know where the ducks come from they always fly the same so we know how to set up and all that sort of stuff um, but then again at the top of the lake southerly is the way to go up there or southwester and then the southwesters and southerlies don't get any good at the bottom. Well, not as good at the bottom end where we hunt. So it's just about figuring out your area. Um, what you want to do, though, if you get a really good, like a, a big gale force in any wind direction, you want to either go upwind. No, sorry. Yeah, upwind because the birds fly under the wind. Get to some shoulder water up there somewhere or find some shoulder water downwind. So you really want it. We used to, when I was a young fellow, we used to be out in the, in the middle of all the big lake in the Norwester, and there'd be massive waves going past. Your decoys are getting smashed all the time. Well, not smashed, but just getting chucked around on the strings all the time. But ducks don't really want to land out there. So you want to get into a sheltered area somewhere behind a sandbar or a point or something like that. Um, and this is the same really anywhere. Even They'll even do it like on a smaller lake. We used to shoot on a coastal lake out at... Um, 
on in Himitangi area that's now been drained, but um, we in a nor'wester the birds all used to go. We we're on the sort of southeastern side, a nor'wester, nor'wester they used to fly right over us and then way up the top end of the shelter. So that's the end of the wind land in the sheltered side. So you really want to be somewhere that's got sheltered water. Um, we find if the wind's going to blow, like some days you get these, some weeks, sorry, you get these relentless northwest, especially in Canterbury, where it just blows northwest, northwest, northwest. You want to be on the upper edge because normally the ducks will fly. Often they'll fly, keep flying under the wind all the time. And if you get day on, day on, day, they'll be up that top end where the wind's the wind. But everything is, if you get a light wind, they'll fly under the wind. If you get a really strong wind, they'll get blown backwards downwind. So, yeah, you just, it's about, we, we just check every forecast we can lay our hands on and figure out roughly what we're going to have as far as wind goes, what we should expect in the morning anyway. Sometimes even then it's different, but you should get, uh, like we'll check MetView, Met Service. There's a new one called Yeno, I think it's called, which is pretty accurate. Um, and you can set that to your location or whatever, or pretty close. So that we find that pretty good. Uh, that works on meters a second, which is a little bit confusing compared to kilometers an hour. So, um, but it's about figuring out that. And then when you get a couple or three forecasts saying the same thing, that's when you can say, all oh, right, this is what we're going to have tomorrow. So then you start looking at where you can go. We use Google, Google Earth a lot. So you can figure out we, you know, where, well, there's a sandbar there and the wind direction we've got that we sheltered them behind that or that point or something like that, you know. So, but yeah, every, we find what works in the Warrapa might be different on Ellesmere. Um, so, and, and, and I want to hunt other lakes, like I'd like to go further south and the South Island and hunt up there. I, now I've got a um, trip where I do into the, one of the Waikato swamps with a couple of mates of mine, which is a, it's into a good family sort of swamp area. It's a real cool, cool trip. Um, and that's different again. They, they want a, a northerly um, to blow birds off the further Thames and stuff mm. like that. So it's just about knowing your area really and knowing what, what makes birds fly. Mm. Yeah. Looking for that, that crap weather that's going to push them off where they're usually sitting and then yep. they obviously just trying to be where they want to be. Trying, yep. And that's and, generally going to be in the shelter somewhere. Yep. And when we're, when we're hunting, I'm always watching what's happening because, and you just store what happens in your memory. And then next time you read the weather forecast, say you're out in the big southwest or whatever, and you're on a certain point, the birds fly out further from you or behind you or something like that. And when next time that same weather forecast, say you're out in the southwest, I should say, at say 80, 100k wind, and you've got water level, because water level is another another factor for the lake when you've got water in certain places and then when the lake drops you don't have water there so the birds aren't there and there's mm -hmm. so many different things but say if you get exactly reenactment of that situation you can go well last time I did this and this happened so I'm going to go sit there this time and normally it works not, not always <laughs> sometimes the birds change the rules but yeah it's um it's it's about just using your memory, just putting things in the memory bank, or writing it down. A lot of people write stuff down as well, but then you've got to find it. And I just I just find I can remember um, what happens in certain areas, and I just keep it in the memory bank. Mm. Yeah, classic one was for us. It was probably about 2012. This is a few years ago now, but we um, we had access into a private part of Lake Warrapa on the on the lake edge. It's like a real swampy on the eastern side. It's all really swampy for. 500 meters pretty much and um 
there's just a couple of there's a big inlet and a couple of open bits of water. And we'd seen we've been down there hunting. We'd seen geese when the Norwest starts, they get up, fly onto this land, turn around and dump in these bits of water. And they're quite they're probably like a 150 meters from the stop back there. So you you're quite a way off the main lake, but they just come in off the lake, turn around, dump in a spit of water. So we saw but normally it's often it's dry in there, so you need a high lake. So we saw, oh yeah, the lake's high. Oh yeah, we've got a nor'wester. So we got down there, the, the nor'wester wasn't going to start till 9.30, 10 in the morning or whatever. So we got down there in the daylight, set up with no lights, put only two dozen full-body decoys out. Two of us shot 80 geese because we knew, we hadn't, you know, we didn't scout. So, oh yeah, this is the X. We knew that they would go there in that wind. We knew that you needed the high lake, you needed the wind, all that sort of stuff, and it was. It was awesome. Like you're saying, the geese coming in low, they were flying They were flying over our shoulder, coming around, and then just dropping down about a metre from us and just coming up. And you'd be looking over your, over your layout blind, like, oh, are they here yet? Are they here yet? And you'd sit up, they'd be like 15, 20 yards, and just boom, 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 boom. So that was back in the magazine days and all that sort of stuff. You could run a, you know, we had eight, nine rounds in the garden and all that sort of thing but it was yeah that was awesome it was one of my highlight hunts yeah, that i've ever had on geese just because it was windy you could watch them fly like that and just oh madness madness mm. and action yeah they um man yeah geese do some crazy stuff on the wind day eh? i've had them um, we had one hunt where they were coming in and it was quite bloody windy and we had them coming straight into it and we had bush right behind us so we were like i was saying we were right at the back of the x so and and with the call i was pulling them all some of the you could see them slowing down and thinking about landing i'll just hit them real hard on the call and they just couldn't i just kept pulling them in yeah and um i've actually got a couple of video shots of them some of them were sort of coming in almost lifting up on the wind looking hovering and then i don't know how they were doing it but somehow spilling air and just dropping almost straight down yeah yeah that, um, they might have been keen to head up to you with the bush behind you because of the shelter. Exactly. And that that, yeah. that spot, there was this tucked away little spot and the geese always went there, especially in the crap weather, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, so that, and, that's what I mean. Like, you just, do you remember that? So next time you get that same wind direction and, and you haven't hunted there for a while, probably, you'll be thinking, oh, yeah, we can probably go back there and get them again, you know. So, yeah, it's, you got a, a situational, definitely, you got to, got to keep that in your memory bank about like last year in that big 17 day trip that I did down Ellesmere um, there was a big southwester coming it lasted two days I was in one area one day it came in and I shot like an absolute champion actually I had um, I had a single come in got that one shot a pair come in got that one sh two shots sorry um, that, they were on the on the right but I shot right handed so I sort of around shot both of those and Four geese came up. I got two of those with three shots. And then I had four mallards come in and then right on my feet, like beautifully right, textbook. I set up two with one shot, one, and then I had one flying in front of me. I was like, oh, and I missed that one. Oh. <laughs> so I missed I missed twice in a day and I got eight birds, five, ten rounds. So I thought that was pretty good. And that was a good, good southwester. And the next day, or well, that afternoon, I went round to the top end of the lake Knew it was going to blow pretty good. So the southwest the next day, and I spent about two hours just mucking around on my bike, just looking back and forth. My mates had been there actually. There'd been two mates come with me, and they'd just gone home the day before, two days before, something like that. So 
I was quite free to just scout. I scouted about two hours, just looked at all these different options in the bike and got a plan. Got there in the morning. Oh, I got woken up in the hut. It was um it was blowing that much and there was dick tears outside getting blown all around the place and waking me up and it takes my mates would say that's unbelievable that I got woken up because it takes a lot to wake me up, especially when I'm not supposed to wake up. Because uh I'm just a heavy sleeper. I got woken up by wind, rain, stuff getting blown around the outside. And then I got up at four in the morning and got on the ute, drove around the road and there was power lines down the road. There was power board there fixing them. There was trees all over the road and that. And it was blowing a really, really strong southwester. And I was like, man, this is what I've been waiting for for nine years. You know, So I got around there to where I was going to go, got the bike off the trailer, drove down. Oh, guy, guy thought I'd crashed. I was on the main Akaroa road. So he thought I crashed. He pulled over. It was pissing with rain. This guy gets out of his ute, comes walking up to me and says, you all right? I said, yeah, I'm going hunting. And he was like, oh, <laughs> he thought I crashed. So <laughs> he um, so he left. And I went, got to where I I was going down this track and there was a grass patch that went out to the lake about 300 metres. And that was dry when I went scouting the day before. When I got there that morning in the dark, there was knee-deep water there. I was like, this has changed my plan for where I was going to go. I was going to go way out to this big sandbar out there. So I was like, well, what do I do? So I was sitting on a little lump of grass at about five in the morning in a pitch black, person with rain, strong wind, thinking this is a little bit crazy. There's power lines all over the road. I was sitting here in a dark in a bush with no plan. <laughs> so I let it get light, set up in this, where I was, pretty much just put a dozen decoys out just to see what would happen. And um, just saw bird after bird going to this little island just to the side of me. So I decided I was going to go and sit over there instead. I had a little bit of open water to walk over to get there. It was quite good waves. But I thought, if I can get over there, I'll be right there in sheltered water. And these birds wanted to be on this grass island. So I stood up to go get my dozen decoys that I had set in this little bit of backwater. And right then a massive gust came, just about knocked me over. I just sit down on the on this island that I was next to. And I looked over to the island I was going to, and it was 150 birds got up all at once and went backwards 100 metres in the wind. Just got up, there was geese, swan, ducks, spoonies, teal, everything. And they just went up like that and just went backwards in the wind. And I was like, man, that is... Then I seen some strong winds at home. I shot in... 140, 160k in all westers where ducks fly backwards. But to see 150 birds like that is, is nothing I've never seen like that before. So, but that, yeah. So I went out to that island. I shot a few birds. I didn't get my limit that day, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know. I got I got a triple. Um, three birds come in right on my feet, set up, shot three of those in three shots. was pretty happy with that. Got a nice couple of spoonies, and I think I ended up with eight mallards and a couple of spoonies or something like that. Missed some geese that were flying over me backwards again. They were flying backwards. I shot. They were facing me like that, facing up, head out into the wind. I shot in front of them, but of course they were going backwards. So I should have shot at their feet. Or I should have shot behind their feet. So, but it's just, you know, it just that's just what you get in, that, in those extreme situations. So that's, um, that's what, that's what I love. That's, uh, out on that sort of stuff was pretty cool. Yeah. I saw things I saw things on that day with quite a high lake and a lot of water pushed up with the wind that I will remember and I'll go if it ever happens again, I know exactly where I'm going. Mm. So experience in, in like scouting. We we haven't talked about scouting yet, but 
you touched on scouting there like scouting is so important right i mean once you've hunted for years and years and you've hunted the same areas over and over and over you get to you know and um i know guys like that i know one guy on the geese around here russell uh he's just like so passionate about hunting geese and he's done it forever and he'll ring me up and say the farmer's got his sheep out of that back paddock now and it's going to be a nor'wester and the, the, we've had a little bit of rain so there's a little bit of water sitting there and he's just he's thinking like seven layers deep you know yeah. and he'll just yeah. break down all this crazy stuff yeah. he'll, and he'll still scout it he'll go out he's i've been going out there for the last three days working all out you know and he's just got it dialed yeah. right in yeah um, that's what you want you want to wait for that weather you know you know he's obviously watching the weather forecast a lot so he knows that this weather's coming and that's going to be that's going to be what makes them go in or they don't hear your shots or whatever mm. um yeah so that's that's what that's part of the hunt as far as i'm concerned if you know you know what wind direction or what weather conditions make them go to that paddock the stock's just gone so there's probably a new bit of growth or something like that they're going to want to go eat plus when the when the weather shits itself they want somewhere to hide so yeah that's and yeah scouting is is important um especially if you don't have a big weather event, which you know where they, what they're going to do in that wind. But yeah, you, you've got to scout. Like we scouted this year when we got down to Ellismere, we scouted a place, found about 150 mallards sitting on a little sandbar. Um, one of my favourite spots on the lake anyway, so I probably would have been keen to go out there anyway. But um, the two of us went out there with a boat each, sat side by side in our little boats, which we'd never ever done before. Well, we'd done before, but we'd never had great success. So there were 150 mallards sitting there, so we thought, oh, we'll go out there. Went out there. We had a bit of a balls up with our decoy set up. It was a bit too tight. We had too many decoys, and everything was a bit tight, so the birds were coming for a look and going, oh, that doesn't look quite right. So, But we ended up shooting our 30 mallards, um, so 15 each. So that was pretty pretty cool to be able to have. Well, as far as I know, that's the first time it's been done in the country. Two layout boats together, a double limit. So yeah, that, was, that was pretty cool, but we scouted that pretty hard to find all those birds and they were towy like they were it was windy it was a good nor'wester um but we knew they would want to go there but they still i think our tight decoys and that's something you got to be a bit careful of too that you don't try and take too many decoys because normally in those boats anyway and on the lake on the on a mimo we don't normally have decoys out of range out of th past 30 yards or 40 or whatever so then if you because we normally we have two dozen ducks and then some swine or some geese or something for visibility but we have been our first day we had our trailer loaded up with two boats four dozen duck decoys probably 50 or 60 swan decoys so we just took the whole lot and when it was all set up it just looked like this massive wall of decoys <laughs> it was just too much so we had to take we had to spread some stuff out and that we had to put decoys probably out of range to get it to make it look a little bit more natural um and then there was the odd bird that landed out on the edge of them so but we still ended up with our 30 um which was was pretty pretty neat like i don't i don't really bother with taking dead duck photos too much like a stack of ducks and stuff like that now because i sort of find those photos a bit boring nowadays because they all look the same so uh, but we definitely took a photo of of 30 mallards on two boats this was pretty cool mm. yeah. it's cool doing something different like that right you know yeah mm. yeah yeah it was yeah it's just i mean the next i want to probably i've been i've shot quite a few limits of ducks on Alice me out of my boat now so i want to do something a little bit different now um 
probably probably might maybe try and shoot um, in a mile a bit more or maybe from a bank or something like that you know or maybe maybe the new boat would be something different you know um but yeah scouting definitely will be put out i've put my boat on let alone seeing ducks when i've been out hunting one day seeing ducks I don't know, five, six hundred metres from me, a cave from me, whatever, just piling in somewhere in a little group for whatever reason. So you guys sit there the next day and have a good little hunt. So that's you know, that's that scouting is definitely key for any any situation, it doesn't matter where you are. If you could if you find ducks there, you can go back the next day and shoot them, most probably. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, scouting and preparation I've found and I've I've screwed up hunts like, you know, I might see some birds going into an area. Geese has been a classic for this and then um and then turning and, and not um not going right to the spot just being like oh yeah there's geese they're going in over the hill over there so they're landing they're over yeah. in that area somewhere yeah. and then yeah. you turn up in the dark and the pissing down rain at uh, in the morning and you, you don't even know where to park you're like almost getting stuck and then and then you set up in the dark so you your your setup's a bit cocked up in that and um and then as it gets daylight, you're like, oh, what the hell? There's a bloody tree over there or something. Just silly things, you know? Yeah, um, or you, you think they're landing there and then when it get because you don't go right up because you don't want to spook the geese or, or you're maybe a bit lazy or whatever. But then it gets light and you're like, oh, shit, they're actually going to land over there. They're actually they're actually not landing here. I mean, the first mob comes, they land over there, and then the light bulb goes on. They're like, oh, well, oh. <laughs> you know, this is what you get for not for not doing the scout properly, probably, you know? Yeah. yeah this um the opening week of this season um down the line i went down two days beforehand two days early so i had two days just to scout um and i already sort of knew where i was shooting you know and i was just shooting ponds but then there was also this big whole lot of geese um, i spent a lot of time um uh, with my little 10 by 42 binoculars bloody driving around that geese block i went backwards and forwards I don't know, six or eight different times and just seeing different places where they were landing and what they were doing and how we we're going to get there and um, right down to all the little details, you know, and um, because like I say, I've screwed up hunts plenty of times and, um, but that was, we and we really nailed it on the geese and on the ducks too, um, just silly things like, um, and that was the second time shooting the pond that I shot on opening um and i went and scouted that even though it's just a pond you know you shouldn't should be able to just turn a pond that i've shot before yeah um but the season before i set up on one side of the pond and all the ducks were trying to land over in this one little arm of it and they were just it was just niggly you know when you're in the wrong spot and some ducks come close enough some don't most they really want to be over there you're trying to pull them to where you are and it was just niggly and so I was planning to set up over that side and I thought I'd be, I'll just leave it so I don't stir it up and push the birds off in there. And then I, last minute I thought, nah, I'm going to go scout it. And I made, did make quite a drama over it. And, and I went there and I actually walked right around the back of it and like belly crawled right up over this hill so I could actually see where all of the ducks were sitting and what was going on. And they actually, they saw me and pushed off. And then I went down and walked around and looked at all the mud and went, and I ended up setting up at the same spot as of the side of the pond as the year before because of the wind and the way the ducks were using it different the, the pond level had actually gone right down yeah um 
and it worked really well. So just little things like that, like you can turn up and set up on the wrong side or something. Yeah. Um, and then by the time it gets daylight and you stuff up the first couple of mobs and then you stuff up the the third and fourth mob moving and sorting all your shit out. And then by then that's three quarters of the flight. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. preparation, yeah. scouting and and um all of that is massive, eh? Yeah, the other thing to note too, when I was I remember as young fellow, we went and scouted these geese out one night, crawled, climbed up the side of this hill and looked over and oh yeah, there they are in the paddock, that's good, we know where they are, all that sort of thing. Didn't really think too much about it. Got there in the morning. How do we get in the paddock? We, yeah. didn't, we hadn't seen where the gates were, where the track was, nothing like that. So we we're like, we have to try and find this paddock in the dark now and figure out how we're going to get through what gates and whatever, and everything looks different in the dark. And all that. so there is, you need to, yeah, you need to pay special attention to not only where the birds are, but how you're going to get in that paddock. On especially on a hill country farm where you've got, it's not just gates; it's got you got tracks on the side of a hill and, and gates to go through and all that sort of thing. So there's lots of, and that was a big learning curve for me to just pay a little bit more attention to how you're actually going to get into this place. You know? Yeah, exactly. All the logistics and um, yep. grassing up your blinds or cutting a heap of grass, having a big wolf yep. edge full of grass. And um, and yeah, that that's a really good point. Logistics, access. Um, can you drive in the paddock? I've seen that before where we think we're going to drive there and we get there and it's way too wet. <laughs> and, and, Don't find out till you get stuck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you've got, um, you know, the next thing you're dragging uh you know dozens of full body you know backwards and forwards running relays of um layout blinds and goose decoys and all that crap yeah um or you think oh we'll grass up the blinds when we get there in the morning and you get there and you can't it's a nightmare trying to find long grass you're in this clean paddock and i've had that before too like an hour and a half crawling around yeah and all of a sudden the pressure's on because the sun's coming up and there's you know the geese are going to fly soon and yeah not the best situation, but we, I, they always have fun. Yeah, I last this season gone, I did a lot of setting up the night before. That's actually what I ended up doing on opening weekend. I went down the night before, pushed them off, and um, set everything up. And there was a real heavy dew on the decoys, but what I did was probably to, like totally unorthodox, but um, I only had about 20-odd decoys out. And I um, I walked around with a bloody uh, a little towel and just wiped it. Took about, yeah, it took about, <laughs> bloody, about took yeah, about five minutes. All, yeah, it's about all you can do yeah. if you if you're worried about that. I mean, if you get a bit of sun come up and it'll dry them fairly quick, but it just depends on whether you're gonna get most of your birds, like you said before, get most of your birds in that time, and then. You, they don't decoy properly because some don't look right. So you take mm. that gamble, really, you know. But um, yeah, there's and there's lots of things like we used to. We had a um, a place we used to shoot over on the Wairapa that started off with a lot of like 800 geese or something. We shot the crap out of them for 10 years. Shot over a thousand. I think it was close to 1500 geese here in that time. Um, just spread out. We're like the first shoot was massive with 250 geese or 230 geese or something. And then um, slowly got down to shooting, and it was like 80 or 90 left there, basically. In the end, we just, but they got so weary in the end, we couldn't scout near the paddock. We had to scout from the top of a hill, like five, six hundred meters away, in some bush, so they couldn't see us. 
you couldn't use lights to get in there on your bikes or your utes or anything like that. It all had to be pitch black. And even sometimes the sound of your bike or your ute would be enough to, to scare them off. So there's, but that's, that's pretty extreme circumstances, you know? So, and even like we don't, we don't normally drive up to right up to where we're going to shoot because your wheel marks could be enough to put them off, things like that, you know, but yeah, uh, on your average geese that don't get shot much, you probably get away with some of the stuff. But if you've got high pressure geese, you can't. There's so many things. It's like a game to, between you. It's like mm. a game of cat and mouse. You know, they they figure you out, you figure them out. And, you know, it's yeah, it is quite cool. But you spend a lot of days sitting in the paddock for nothing too. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. always get those. Eh? Yeah. Um, we ended up um, a couple of those hunts. I got so sick of bloody getting up at three o'clock in the morning and crawling around and grass and blinds and putting out, you know, it could take a good hour and a half or two hours or something to set up a good goose hunt. Um, we did it those, I think both those hunts we did, we set up everything the night before. So all we had to do in the morning was leave the truck right back at the shed yeah. and um, and walk right down just with our little bag and hop in the blind. And it's, oh, it's such a treat doing it like that. Yeah, when, yeah. When Instead of busting ass for an hour and a half, and you're all sort of flustered and half buggered by the time you get in the get in the blind, you know. But just being able to walk down and hop in the blind, it was re- and it worked really well because um, most of the those geese were day feeding, so they were going back in the evening anyway, and then coming back first thing in the morning. So that worked really well. Yeah, is that mm. winter time then, or not not summer? Uh yeah, not summer. That was. Um, yeah, that was May. That was like first weekend of duck shooting. We did a few days on the ducks and then hooked into the geese. Yep. Yeah, often they, in the summer, that's too hot to sit there all day. So they have a morning feed and an evening feed, which can be good because you can watch them in the morning, know they're coming back for the same place in the evening and set up in the daylight, get them and they come back for the evening. And you get you often get a really fast flight then too, so it can be quite fun. Um, but pack it up in the ducks, no, when you're as good as pack it up in the daylight, but <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the same thing, but the other way around, eh? Yeah, uh, yeah that... I mean, there's there's so many different things to, you know, and, that, and that the water's cool about hunting, or hunting in general, really, is you got to figure out your prey, you know. And uh, there's so many different things to to weigh up, especially when you get smart geese or uh, a big water hunt or whatever like that. There's so many different things to look at, so many different options and things like that different scenarios and sometimes maybe we overthink it too but that's all part of it eh? yeah a hundred percent you can start yep. to overthink it eh? yeah yeah and you think something that you're doing is working you're like man i worked out the key and then three hunts later you're like oh no that, that it wasn't working because of this <laughs> it was actually because of that and then later you're like but was it maybe yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you yeah, drive yourself got, nuts eh, doing it yeah yeah particularly on Alice, we got favorite spots for different wind directions that we go to you know when we see that wind direction we're like right we're going there tomorrow but truth be known if there's ducks on the lake you could probably go anywhere and you'd still get birds but it's just you know just one of those things we've had good experiences there so that's where we go but and, and if there's no ducks on the lake or not many ducks on the lake you probably struggle in that place as well you know so um but yeah it is <laughs> there is a lot of overthinking goes on especially with a couple of my mates that we, we just give it to them all the time about overthinking this shit out of things, you know, like it doesn't really matter, you know, you're like, I'm not really a believer in flock decoys for ducks, but geese on paddocks, yeah, fair enough. Even ducks on paddocks is probably probably worthy, but um, <clears throat> you don't need flock decoys for, for the lake or on the water. But 
couple of mates still, one mate in particular still uses them and, you know, thinks it makes a difference and everybody else is sort of keyed on to the fact that it's not worth the hassle and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, that's only personal. If you want to use flop equals, I'm not saying you're silly, but um, <clears throat> but we we just find they're not worth the hassle. Um, to keep a flock equal nice and all the time you get in a little wee advantage it might make on the odd day, um, it's just not worth the hassle. Mm. So, um, but yeah, he, he still thinks his flock equals make a difference. So, <laughs> up to him, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't be bothered with all the hassle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think the flock blocking is the be all and end all. I've got a bit of a combination of the two. And I don't have any fully flock spreads, but um, I, yeah, I do have a few. But um, yeah, I think um, a huge, huge one that's really easy to confuse is um, just being well camouflaged and no movement covering yourself up. And I think you can, it's quite easy to think, oh, is it the decoys or is it the calling or is it this or is it that? And it's like the bloody things can see you, you know? Yeah, that's right. Concealment, oh, location, obviously, if you really want to get birds. But even then, if you've got a good hide and good decoys and good calling, you can talk ducks into coming in. You can do it with geese too, but it's a lot harder. Um, but yeah, your concealment, really, you got to have you got to have it right. Um, mm. Otherwise, those birds aren't coming. If something looks weird, they're not gonna not gonna come. I don't really buy into the thing about people saying, "Oh, you got to build them on my early to make it look normal and they get used to it and all that sort of thing." But um, you don't really need to do that, but you've got to be well hidden. And maybe those guys that say that are the ones that shoot in big pin sheds and stuff like that with not much camo on them or something like that, maybe. Um, but yeah, I don't really, I mean, I've had so many hunts out of <clears throat> a temporary my my it's just popped up that morning, a bush that just appears there and the ducks don't care, you know, because it, it just looks natural. So um, you don't necessarily need to worry about that, but you need to be well hidden. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a really, really big one, eh? Yeah, the concealment. And, um, yeah, I have seen guys be a little bit loose with that. And you can get the odd hunt, and it can be a bit confusing. And and going back to overthinking, like, sometimes you can have everything perfect and you're well hidden in everything, and they won't come. They'll come in and they'll want it. You're on the right spot, everything, and they're just niggly. And who knows why, you know, they're bloody... I might have been shot at the day before somewhere close or they might have been even where you are if you're on a public spot or something they might have been hassled there recently mm. yeah recently or, or whatever and um uh, who knows you know there could be so many different variables but yeah and other other times you can be somewhere and your camo isn't that good and they're coming in while you're moving around and doing all you know like while you're picking them you know sometimes they just really want to come in and it's not as important but yeah, I think that's got a lot to do with, well, how focused they are on getting to your spot, how much they want to be there, and mm. also how much pressure they've had. If they've been shot at a lot, they'll be more weary anyway. Even if they're hungry, they'll still be more weary. So if you're in somewhere that's had a lot of hassle, like a lot of public order that's had a lot of shooters, then you're probably going to have it harder. But not always. I mean, we get we get some dumb ducks on, on Ellesmere sometimes, and that'd be one of the heaviest shot lakes in the country sometimes, you know. Um and even Warwick, we get some ducks there that are just silly, but uh, I don't know whether, I don't know what causes it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, sometimes it seems to be some funny unknown thing that yeah. they just have in that a day that yep. they just been silly, and another day they're not as silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, no. But that, that's what makes it hunting, and that's what makes it very, you know, rather than just shooting them all, it's, it's what's part of it, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Oh, man, we'll wrap this up, eh? Yep, all right. Yeah, awesome yarn. Thanks a lot for coming on. It's all right. Yeah, and, um, yeah, it'll be cool to catch up for a shoot one day and um, we'll try to think of some other stuff to talk about duck shooting or something and do another podcast sometime. Yeah, yeah, no worries at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if I could just jump in and say we've got the National Duck Calling Competition, Duck and Goose Calling Competition, that the Seeker Show, which I think is, I can't remember the date, 20-something of October. It's at the Seeker Show in, in the Hamilton anyway, at the um, Mystery, Mystery Creek. We've got, it's on the Saturday, Duck and Goose Calling Com- National Competitions. So it's a live duck, so the idea is you sound as much like a live bird rather than a screaming hail calls and stuff like that you just sound like a live goose or a live duck so anybody can enter um you just jump in get into it and if you don't make the grade you just don't make the next round so there's no you know no no need to qualify or anything like that you just get in and do it um i've been a judge for a few years i don't know if i'll judge this year i might be mc maybe um not sure but yeah it's uh it's cool good fun competition uh, yeah, cool. So that's yeah. at the Seeker Show. Where can you yeah. give where and when again? You enter on the day at the, yeah. at the Seeker Show, normally at the Rotten Rifle stand. I would say that's probably going to be the way it's going to go again. Um, and there's prizes for a lot of things. We get a lot of prizes to juniors and stuff like that because we're trying to encourage young kids to come along and pick up a duck call and have a go. You know? yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it's at Mystery Creek at, uh, I think it's October the 20 something. I'll just get my phone and get to have yeah. a look at the. We'd be able to Google the yeah. Seeker Show anyway, eh? That would be the way to go. Uh, oh, that's cool that it's more towards like sounding like a natural, yeah, like how you'd yeah, actually no, want to call birds, not yeah, that full on, not that, yeah, that like I, that competition calling is cool. It's a whole art of its own, but yeah, um, mm, that's um, so, I just, yeah, it's, it's not really, uh, it's not, well, we're trying to like, uh, live duck or hunting type style rather than screaming at ducks you know mm. uh, i just wrote that down as a topic for next time man because we haven't even we haven't that's the one thing we haven't talked about is calling yeah oh yeah yeah well that's i don't mind doing jumping on and doing this again i mean i love just talking about ducks <laughs> i don't care um <laughs> just talking about anything duck hunting and so i can do it for, for hours so uh data We could bring the calls on and actually do some calling. Yeah. Yeah, if you want. I don't know if I can do that in the house at night. Yeah. <laughs> Sometime <laughs> when you're over this way. <laughs> no, right. 29th and 30th of October, 2022. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, sweet. Duck calling comp. Yeah. So it's on the 29th, Saturday the 29th, and then the show's still going on the Sunday as well. So it's okay. quite a, we haven't, it's at the, um, Mystery Creek this year normally was in Taupo pre-COVID. We haven't had it for two years. Seeker Show has been cancelled every time they've gone to have it for the last two years. So there's new owners that own it now and they've decided they want to run it Mystery Creek, which I reckon is pretty good. Taupo was not really big enough, um, not really enough parking and all that sort of stuff. So these new guys, it's closer to 
a bigger bulk of the population as well. So you should get a few more people coming along, hopefully, and um, bigger grounds. And, and Mystery Creek has run as four events you know, like this. So um, I think it's a good move. So, yeah. Mm. Oh, that'll be cool. Yeah. I feel a bit sorry for them because I've owned the, owned the thing for two years and never been able to run a show yet. So. Oh, really? <laughs> they took so, over right, right on COVID. Yeah. Yeah, they did. So, uh, well, just, yeah, they did pretty much. And then the show was normally in October. October. Might have been a bit earlier than what it is now, I think. Um, so they were like, obviously, COVID started in February, whatever it was, March. And then, but it was still, we still had level, whatever it was. We couldn't have a gathering in 2020. We had that little flare up around about the same time of the year. In 2021, so that can mm. again. So uh, I haven't met them. I don't know these people. Adam Rain is the one that jacks up all the all the competition. I'm just I just turn up and be a judge. Again, he reckons he says I do a good job, but I reckon I got the easiest job. So it's me, uh, Mark Bedford, Tony Tony Dobbs is another judge, and we've got Adam uh, Paul Thomas, another judge. So there's four of us good judges. Now, yeah, I think, cool. I think we've got some of the best guys in the country to be judges. So not, not blowing my own smoke, but yeah, I think other guys, I think are good. Adam got hold of me first years ago before we even ran a nationals. We had a, a competition at the seeker show. Um, I don't even know that would be five or six years ago, I guess. Oh, yes. Maybe more even. Um, so I've been a judge for Adam since then. So, that's been been fun. Yeah, cool. Yeah, definitely get along to see that. And um, remind me closer to the time too, and I'll I'll pump it out across the social media and that. Yep. Yeah. yeah. All right, awesome, man. All right, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Thanks for coming on. Yep. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. See ya.